Hello, everyone, and welcome to Movie Change Up, the Impossible Movie Remake Show. Uh, we have an exciting podcast for you today as we venture into forgotten movies once again, but it's a little different today because we're doing kind of failed movies that were all based on pretty famous TV shows. So we we have an exciting match. It's going to be Joe versus our very festive-looking Tristan uh, down in the corner with his... I don't even know what shades those are. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if you if you're new to the uh, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you are a returning viewer, welcome back. Uh, please like and subscribe on YouTube and give us a five star review on any of your favorite podcast apps that helps us out. Um, but going into it today, uh, I will be your host, Johnny Dupe. Um, my, I will let my co-judge introduce himself before we get into more of the details. Well, I'm Bobby, uh, coming off of, uh, or get kind of, I'm getting ready for our two of our championship match. So I've been a little distracted, you know, going against Johnny later on in a couple of weeks, but, uh, I'm definitely excited for this. Um, it, movies based on TV shows can always be interesting. Cause I feel like they either go terribly wrong or, or are like pretty entertaining, like fun kind of blockbuster movies for the most part. Um, so I'd like to see your takes on some of these that failed. Um, and I'm looking forward to, it. I think we have some fun rules today. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. And we'll, we'll introduce those, uh, the seven movies we're doing in the seven rules once we introduce our competitors. So first of all, we're starting with the man in the tune squad shirt. Um, and I guess him and Tristan got the memo that they had to wear some type of birthday, uh, related gear. Cause it looks like Joe's got yeah. a hat yeah. on or something. Yeah, there's a reason for I'm it. not really yeah. sure. Yeah, so uh, if you don't know, tomorrow is the official uh, one-year birthday of the Movie Change-Up podcast. It was when we put up our first ever official episode where we, we it was me versus Johnny and we brought Bobby in as a judge. So yeah, the uh, July 15th was the upload of the first official episode of the podcast. Um, so I got like a little one-year uh, birthday hat on. I'm also, it's a pretty good week for me because we got birthday of the podcast and I'm also wearing a Toon Squad jersey. Because it's a di- uh, week I've been waiting for for a long time with uh, Space Jam 2 and New Legacy dropping on Friday. So just a whole lot of I, greatness happening in my life. I don't think I ever knew the full title. I did, I thought it was just called Space Jam 2. Yeah. I didn't know that it was... Uh, I don't even think there's a, a 2. Subtitle. I think it's just Space Jam and New Legacy. It just, oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that being said, it's also my fiance's birthday in two days. Um, so we're celebrating many birthdays around here. So, uh, getting to it, we'll go to our man in the glasses down there. Uh, introduce yourself today, Tristan, and how do you feel going into Forgotten Movies again? Look, I'm feeling pretty good. Bobby mentioned that sometimes TV shows turn into movies are good, and sometimes they're bad. You're going to see that today. You're going to see a lot of good ones from one side of the aisle, a lot of bad ones from the other side. You know, I'm here to give some great pitches. I'm pretty confident in what I got here. Uh, I do know I've been on a bit of a losing streak recently, but I believe I can fly I believe I can touch the sky. <laughs> I think about it every night and day. I want to spread my wings and fly away. So let's go. I'm going to win this, Joe. Get ready to lose. You're going to lose here, and Space Jam 2 is going to suck. So it's going to be a bad week for you, Joe. All right. And one <laughs> thing in, I do want to jam. I do want to promote oh. is uh, me and Tristan are going to, and I guess either one of you that want to join Friday night are going to be doing a live watch along of Space Jam, A New Legacy. We're both going to be watching it for the first time and commenting live on uh, our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash moviechangeout. Wow, very exciting. Yeah. Um, 
We're both yeah, on opposing sure. sides of that movie too, so it should be a fun viewing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it should be contentious. I like it. All right. Um that'll be a little uh the, today will be a preview to that as these two go head to head. Um our contestants will have seven movies uh with uh and seven rules. They have to use one rule per movie and you can't use the same rule more than once. So that being said, we'll get into it. Our first forgotten movie based on a TV show today. We're doing Gilligan's Island, which uh, the film was released in 1996. Dexter's uh, Laboratory, which was released in 2010. Quantum Leap, Time Jump, which was released in 2000. Mantis, which was released in 2009. Hogan's Heroes, which was released in 1976. Alias, that was uh, released in 2007. And Smiley's People, which was released in 1986. Obviously, those shows ran uh, different years, but those were those are the uh, movies that we're basing these off of. And Bobby, do you have our seven rules that our combatants must use today? I do. We have one must feature a cameo from an original cast member. One must be a short film. One must cross over with another franchise. One must have a cast comprised of stand-up comics. One must be a horror movie. One must be a rom-com, kind of the opposite of that. Uh, and one must feature a cast of all women. All righty. Bobby's saying rom-coms can't also be horror movies. And I uh, disagree. Gone Girl? I don't know. That's that's not really a rom-com. I don't know. I've <laughs> seen there's something about Mary and uh, <laughs> the balls getting zipped up is pretty horrifying. Um, so uh, I believe Tristan won our little contest before uh, the show started. So he's choosing what movie we're doing first. Tristan, where are we starting with? Let's start with something that's kind of the classic from my childhood. We're going to go with Dexter's Laboratory, or should I say Laboratory, to be in, in Dexter's Laboratory. Yeah. All right, Dexter's Laboratory. People might not remember this, but the movie was released in 2010. It got a 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was directed by Raja Gosnell. Um, it, the live-action version of Dexter's Laboratory has was hated so much in early screenings that it was shelved for five years and released straight to DVD. The only reason the film is remembered by some people is that before streaming, it was the largest budgeted straight-to-video release of all time. So this was meant to be a large-budget release around 2005. It got panned in pre-screenings, and they released it after a shelf uh, for a few years, so people really didn't see it. Um, but they put a lot of money into it, and it was a pretty big bomb. So Tristan, you said uh, you're going first or Joe's going first? I'll go first on this one. All right. Well, what do you got for us uh, for a better version of Dexter's Laboratory? So for Dexter's Laboratory, I decided to make my movie an animated movie. And I also had a crossover with a different franchise. I'll mention that my director is uh, Michael Rianda, who just did Mitchell vs. the Machines, which is possibly the best movie of the whole year 2020. Definitely the best animated movie so far. Uh, and the franchise I crossed it over with is Scooby-Doo. We'll get into that a little bit when I get into my pitch. But... Uh, Dexter is kind of preparing for a science lab and a, or I mean, a science uh, fair, and he's working late in his lab. He has a really kind of big high sex experiment going on. He has his rival, Mandark, that we know from the show, is also in the science fair. So Dexter is kind of stressed to make this the best possible uh, experiment he can do. But the experiment goes wrong. He pours his chemicals in too much when he's too tired at late at night, and there's kind of a big explosion of, of smoke and dust, and he creates a ghost in his lab. So the Scooby gang is enlisted to help solve the mystery of the hunted laboratory. And they kind of come into the world of Dexter's lab and interact with a lot of the characters. 
I think the comedy dynamics in this would be really interesting. You have sort of like the forever skeptic and the very science-oriented Dexter, and he's contrasting with the Scooby gang. He's had these kind of bizarre experiences, uh, but they do kind of mention like, oh, yeah, there's always someone behind it. It's always a practical experience, and Thelma has like a quip line of saying, oh, except for the time there were zombies, you know, implying like, oh, the one time they went to Zombie Island is, is, is there, but all of these new Scooby-Doo stuff where it's like really ridiculous and huge and big, like the new movies are not part of this kind of story here. I think it would be fun to see Dexter interact with Velma because Velma has that really science techie kind of mind. And I think they can get in, into like the weeds of a lot of techno babble and talk about some really fun, like science and lab kind of conversations that would be fun to see them have. And I also think Shaggy and Scooby would be fun with Dexter because they're such klutzes and they're always like, knocking stuff over and not knowing what's going on and Dexter of course is very protective of his lab so with Scooby and Shaggy ever knock anything over and you know he's always upset about it and I also wanted to add in some family bonding because I think uh Mitchell versus Machines what was really interesting was a family dynamic of that you really had like a family coming together in this story so I wanted since Dexter's out of his lab and he isn't normally out of his lab for this long he's having a chance to kind of connect with Dee Dee connect with his mom and dad a little bit more than he normally does so you're seeing that Dexter family also come together too a bit. And of course, you still get the investigation. Scooby-Doo and the gang are trying to investigate this lab, and they're seeing some mysterious occurrences. They're not quite sure that it's a ghost, and they're trying to come up with some kind of rational explanation for it. And in the end, the ghost is Mandark, Dexter's rival. Uh, he did this to try and keep Dexter out of his lab the, night before, uh, the couple of days before the science fair so that Mandark could upshow Dexter and kind of become the biggest scientist of the whole area, which is his kind of goal throughout the show. He wants to prove himself as the ultimate genius, but of course he gets caught and Dexter's learned a bit of a lesson himself. He's learned to value his family a bit more. He didn't spend much time with them beforehand, but now he's kind of seen a bit more of what they can mean to him and what they can do for him. And that's my, that's my story. You get the bonding of Dexter and his family a little bit, but you also get a lot of time with Dexter and the Scooby gang solving a mystery within the lab. And like classic Scooby-Doo stories, there's always a rational explanation. So it was turns out it was just Man Dark the whole time. And that's my pitch for Dexter's Lab. All right. During that, I'm not sure if Bobby was uh, frozen yeah. or just had the same look on his face throughout the whole thing. I was trying I'm to see if he was still. moving, and I didn't see him moving. Yeah. So I can't tell. But, Listening uh, intently, right. so I couldn't tell you. I like the classic Cartoon Network crossover there. Um, and yeah, Mitchell's versus the Machines is definitely my favorite, uh, my personal favorite movie of the year. Uh, so, Joe, what do you got to combat with uh, with uh, Tristan's version of Dexter's Laboratory? All right. So, uh, my uh, director is going to be Seth MacFarlane, uh, who obviously you know from like Family Guy, and he's also done sci-fi stuff like The Orville. And then he also, I also brought in the classic voices for Dexter and Dee Dee, but I wanted to include some of the other characters from outside of. Uh, like the main Dexter cast, basically uh, the Justice Friends. You have Val Hallen, who's essentially like Thor meets a rock star, and he's going to be voiced by Jack Black. You also have Major Glory, uh, who's essentially Superman meets Captain America, voiced by John Cena. And then the infragable Kronk, who is essentially the Hulk, but purple, going to be voiced by Vin Diesel. And I also uh, am making mine a short film. Uh, so one, I, one thing I say is when animated shows change animation styles, it never looks good. So I would essentially just keep the same animation style, but just do it like in 4K and like HD and just make it look clean and make it look good. And for the, my plot, Dexter is working on a machine he needs help with. So he decides the best course of action is to pull a bunch of Dexters from the multiverse into his lab to help him. He pulls a hair from his comb to get the needed DNA for his multiverse machine so it can find the other Dexters. 
when he what he didn't know was his annoying sister Dee Dee used his comb earlier that day and he grabbed her hair and now his lab is populated with dozens of alternate universe Dee Dee's. There are old Dee Dee's, middle aged Dee Dee's, baby Dee Dee's, male Dee Dee's, cave woman Dee Dee's, robot Dee Dee's. And Dexter realizes he has to send them all back to their original universes before his par parents find out and wreck his lab. Uh, after struggling a while, he calls on the Justice Friends to help him fight the DDs and send them back. Uh, and that's kind of the main plot is them all working together to take send the DDs back to the machine. And I said, I think this could be a really cool and fun 30 to 40 minute short for HBO Max where uh, Dexter's lab currently streams. And because of the fact that the episodes were kind of always split into two or even three uh, parts, a short would still be longer than any story you got from an actual episode. And that's my pitch. Oh, one thing I do want to add is one of the reasons I picked Seth MacFarlane is he wrote uh, four episodes of the original show. And I feel like with his sci-fi work on the Orville and some of the sci-fi stuff he'll include in episodes of Family Guy, I think he'd be a good fit. And then that's my, that's all I have. As Bobby said in the comments, you are lucky he is the deciding <laughs> judge on this yeah. one. Um, I like Seth MacFarlane quite a bit more than Johnny well, actually yeah. like Seth MacFarlane, actually. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Yeah. not hard to do. Um, all right. So that being said, so Tristan started. So we're going to give him a minute on the clock. Do you guys have questions? Um, or? Yeah, I, I do. I have a couple. I don't know if Johnny oh, yeah, can yeah, do. Yeah. Bobby, ask your question. I'll see if I got anything. Uh, my only one for Tristan is what what because Joe described his animation styles being like a 4K version of the original. Uh, what is yours going to be? Is it going to be a little bit more modern 3D or is it 2D? Is what's the visual style? Yeah, I'm definitely going to go back to the 2D style. I think you've seen a lot of 3D animation in, in movies and stuff, and I think people are kind of ready to get like a throwback stuff, especially if you're going to this 90s kind of throwback show. You want it to kind of feel a bit like a throwback. You know, it it, it is a 2D animation, but the quality I definitely think is a lot higher. You know, it's going to be still like a 1080p high quality animation. Okay, and then for Joe, you may have said it, I might have missed it, but with Seth MacFarlane doing this is. Um, and you said he wrote a lot on the original show, but is he going to bring his more kind of R-rated humor to no, it? No, I feel like it it's more just going to more... be more like the classic kind of the similar tone of the original show. Because he's shown with things like The Orville and other things that he do it doesn't necessarily have to be like this R-rated comedy. And he can do more okay. like PG-rated stuff. All right. um, That's all I my, my one question is for Tristan, because he mentioned, obviously, one of the strong points of... Uh, Mitchell's versus the machines is the family dynamic. And he's going to kind of delve into that in his version of uh, Dexter's lab. Um, but how are, cause you kind of talked about Dexter interacting with like Scooby and Shaggy and with Velma, mm -hmm. but how are the characters going to interact with Dee Dee? Are we going to get a scene? Are we going to get like Dee Dee kind of teaming up with Scooby and Shaggy? Cause they're kind of like the clumsy, uh, like goofballs, or are you not really going to get into like the family dynamics with the Scooby gang? Uh, yeah, I definitely had Dee Dee be a part of the story. I add my uh, paragraphs here that she goes out with uh, Daphne because I think that's kind of a contrast. They're very different. They're similar like types of people, but their their personalities and everything about them is very kind of different. So I think they'd be a fun pairing to be together. And they're sort of like as the damsel in distress a bit throughout the story. But I think that'd be like a fun bonding of Daphne and Dee Dee. And, Dee and Daphne can kind of even comfort Dee Dee a bit because Dee Dee is much younger than her and Daphne can be like this role model bit for her to look up to and be like, hey, it gets a bit better when you're out of school, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. All right. Well, then I think that answers the only question I really had there. Um, so, Tristan, you get a minute on the clock. Bobby, you have a timer? I Ready? do. All right, cool. Then, yep, Tristan, you get a minute. Uh, 
talked about why your movie is better than Joe's. Well, for yeah, one, so I'm, never... I'm not going to yeah. go too much on the Seth MacFarlane, but I do think as as a writer, he's solid, but as a director, he hasn't really shown anything that really like blew me away or even was very good. Like A lot of his directed movies are pretty bad, so I don't necessarily think giving him a direction uh, role is what I would do. And I also think that mine works because it is that crossover. It's not just like, oh, here's Dexter's Lab for a few minutes. It's like you're actually getting Scooby-Doo and Dexter's Lab, two things that are kind of lost the culture. And you've seen Scooby-Doo that's gotten like... 30 seconds. Scooby-Doo's gotten kind of grounded up into this... Like the last Scooby movie was pretty bad. So I want to bring a chance to not just do Dexter's Lab right, but do Scooby-Doo right and give both of those characters and both of those shows a chance to shine in 2021 and come back into... Into the into the forefront. Okay, you got ten seconds. Uh, ten seconds. Yeah, uh, Joe sucks. So, uh, go ahead. <laughs> good use right. of good use of the ten I'll, seconds. I'm done. You're done then. Okay. All right, All right Joe. Whenever Bobby is ready. Yeah. Whenever you, yeah, whenever you start talking. All right. So my main thing against Tristan's is I feel like the comedy doesn't really line up. Like I still can't picture in my head kind of because basically in the show Dexter's just like this kind of douchebag like character like him and all the characters in that world like Dexter and Mandark Didi are just like all these weird annoying characters and um uh Scooby-Doo is a lot more like chill and relaxed and laid back and I just don't know if like yeah they're different and sometimes opposites go together but I just don't think those two like styles really go together well at all I just can't see them interacting and as far as 30 seconds and uh that's my main big negative against him or against his and i feel like part of the problem is it's like too old school it's two properties that aren't really pop you know popular anymore one of the things i wanted i included the justice friends in mine is because you can do there's you know because of the mcu and other things there's a lot more jokes you can include in the area of the multiverse and other things that are popular and happening now that you can reference and uh, that you can talk about that you couldn't before all right time is up okay so now two minutes. Johnny, you're muted still, but uh, you guys get two minutes. Tristan, you start. Um, and whenever you start talking to rebut or bring up new points, whatever you want to do, go ahead. All right. So my first point I'm going to address is the comedy aspect. You said that these are very different characters that you wouldn't see interacting. Uh, and I think that is kind of the point. Like I put them together because they're opposites. And you mentioned that Scooby Gang is much more chill and not like these douchey, arrogant characters. And I think the Scooby gang is, but the characters they meet, like the each episode they meet new characters in these towns they go to, and those people aren't chill. Those people are kind of the douches. Those people are kind of people who go through the arcs and make the changes and kind of are the ones that the Scooby gang, through their good nature, kind of inspires. So you mentioned that like Dee Dee and Dexter are kind of weird, almost douchey characters, and that's part of the story. I mentioned that they kind of grow and connect a bit more than they had in the show here. So it's a chance for them to readdress that douchiness of these characters a little bit and make them a bit uh more likable a bit more growth to them uh and you said that scooby-doo is not popular that dexter's lab is not popular i think scooby-doo is very popular that movie that came out recently made a lot of money and the show is still there's still new shows coming out for this for this franchise so it's not a dead ip at all you know and yours is more superhero stuff and i get that's popular but i'd like to see something different and not just yet another like superhero multiverse joke for 20 minutes I think that mine just gets the most out of Dexter's Lab and gets the most out of Scooby-Doo because I think it has that kind of skeptical, douchey, anxiety-like energy of Dexter's Lab, Lab episode and it contrasts with like the chill, goofy vibes of a Scooby-Doo episode. And I think the best crossover is two different things coming together rather than like two things that are very similar in the same vein that just kind of feel like more of the same. So I think bringing two different things together 
in a crossover is what makes a crossover very interesting. You know, you look at like Talk Nickelodeon, you had Jimmy Neutron and Fairly Odd Parents, not just different shows, but totally different animation styles. And they were still able to make that crossover work. So I think you talk about these things, these shows are different from each other. Like that's a bad thing. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a positive for my movie that these are different characters and different vibes and different shows. And I think it would be a fun challenge to merge those tones together. And I think that our director can do it. And if he pulls it off, I think we'd have a really great movie that gets the most out of iconic characters from our childhoods from the childhoods of our parents from a lot of different generations kind of coming together. Okay. All good. All right, Joe, whenever you start talking. All right. Well, first off, you said Scoob made a lot of money. It made $26.4 million. I understand it was in the middle of a pandemic, but Tom and Jerry made $124 million, almost five times as much. So I wouldn't use that as a movie as an example that people still care about that franchise. Uh, As far as uh, your point against the opposites, I just... I feel like, yes, opposites can, you know, go together and work together and make something better. I just feel like your movie almost feels more like a Scooby-Doo movie, like from how you pitch it, where it's like, oh, they go and they meet these people and those people change, where it's a Dexter's laboratory and your movie still feels like, oh, like the shitty people that they go and see are supposed to now be the main characters. I don't know if that necessarily fits. With my movie, I feel like um, comedy and style, and it's also shorter. Like I tried watching Dexter's Lab, and I don't know if, like, that whole thing could sustain a full movie. You even look at, like, the animated Scoob movies. Like, I don't know how great those really are. I don't know if that can really hold, like, a full attention movie. And that's why I personally went One minute. for a short with mine. Because it's 30, 30 to 40 minutes. You, you watch it. You enjoy it. It's over. Uh, I feel like it's a nice uh, plot that goes well with uh, Dexter's Laboratory and goes to the base of what Dexter's Laboratory of, like, him and his sister... And I don't know if ghosts and all that necessarily go into what I would expect from a Dexter's Lab. I also don't really understand the plot of Mandark pretends to be a ghost and that's somehow supposed to make Dexter be a bad scientist. Doesn't really uh, fully make sense to me either. Uh, And that's all. That's all I got. Okay. All right. Okay, Bobby. Um... You're making the final call, so I'll kind of just put my my thoughts out there. Um, I love Mitchells versus the Machines, but I don't necessarily see the fit with Tristan's pitch all the way, especially talking about the animation style being closer to like the Dexter's Lab, because I think the animation style of Mitchells versus the Machines was uh, was one of the uh, really strong elements of it. Um, but overall, if I'm scrolling through. Uh, you know, Disney plus or Netflix or anything. And it has these two movies on it. And one is a short film and one is a a full movie with the Scooby-Doo. I think it was smart to incorporate um, another Mm -hmm. franchise into it. And I wouldn't necessarily think that a short film, like it just seems like, I mean, Seth MacFarlane, I understand the pick more after Joe explained that he helped work on the original show, but it just seems like, an extended episode of the show. I don't think it's necessarily smart to take an animated show and just do a short film with it. I'm not as into that um, as like a full movie incorporating the Scooby-Doo gang. I think that's an interesting concept. I think those characters do go well together because they contrast so, um, so much that I think it would make interesting pairings. I'd like to see Dee Dee interact with Scooby and Shaggy. I think that could be really funny. I'd like to see Dexter interact with Velma. So I, I think 
just me personally, I'd be more into Tristan's pick, but I wasn't 100% sold on either either one. Yeah, I was very similar. Like there was a lot of elements of Tristan's that I loved, and there were a couple that didn't quite come together for me, uh, including kind of how it all resolved with Mandark uh, being like pretending to be a ghost. Um, but I think Joe, I think with an animated kind of thing to make that a short film, I don't know if I, I love that decision. Like, it's not bad, but the Seth MacFarlane fit, too, to go along with that. I think, because I actually do like Seth MacFarlane quite a bit, um, and I like his more raunchy-styled humor. I, I think it's kind of a waste to, to put him into something that, um, in a, on an animated level, that's kind of a little bit more like a throwback kind of basic thing without adding his kind of touches to it. Um, but I, I, overall, it just, I think the crossover Scooby-Doo sounds like a lot of fun. It, it just, it just, that called to me more than seeing like just a short version of Dexter's lab, um, a, like a shortened movie. So, um, I'm going to give it to Tristan, but it was, it was pretty close for me. It wasn't like a blow runaway. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely closer than, than it was for Johnny. Yeah. Well, Joe, Joe made it closer than I would have originally thought when he, as soon as he said Seth MacFarlane, I think he did a good job kind of explaining yeah. what it what it would be. But yeah, I agree. I think just, if you're gonna if you're gonna do it nowadays, after McFarlane has a more established career, I think you should have gone more adult humor yeah. type Dexter with it. Um and it would have made it stand out at least to like then I could have seen it for fans of Seth McFarlane, yeah. it'll stand yeah. out. Yeah. Um Right, and yeah, of course you didn't. You yeah. wouldn't didn't know Tristan's pitch, but it would have separated the two style wise and like yeah. humor just to, to yeah. be a little bit more um, that. But I am disappointed none of you brought up the Robo Dexo two thousand, which is his big giant fighting robot, because uh, that would have been fun to add into the movie. But hey, you guys should have crossed it over with real steel. Yeah. Can't believe <laughs> missed opportunity. Yeah. Um, Wait next time. You'll never guess what franchise I cross over my movie into. I'll say that when I get to that point. We're about to get a real steel crossover. You spoiled it, Johnny. Yeah, real steel versus mantis. Um, <laughs> all right. So that being said, Joe, uh, you're down uh, a one. So what what are we going next? You need to bounce back here. Uh, I'll, I'll, I have some riskier ones, but I'm gonna decide to go with a safer one, and I'm gonna go with uh, Smiley's people, and I'll go first. Okay. Smiley's people. Um, Joe texted in our group chat. He wonders who picked this, and after my uh, very long description of the other John le Carre novel, uh, <laughs> The Constant Gardener. I thought it would be pretty obvious who chose this one, so I'm interested to see which direction Joe went with it. Um, Smiley's People uh, came out in 1986. It got a 13% of Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it was directed by the great Irvin Kirshner. Uh, it was released just a few years after the successful Alec Guinness-led miniseries on TV. And the film did not quite find the same magic. Audiences and critics alike found the film a redundant mess. And I would agree if you've seen the film compared to the short, uh, the short series, uh, there's no comparison. But I love a good uh, spy thriller, so I'm excited to see what you guys have for us. Joe, you said you're going first, so let's see uh, what you did with, uh, with this uh, uh, film. All right, so uh, I'll start. I'll do my director, and then I'll give my pitch, and then I'll give uh, my cast to kind of wrap it up. So my director is uh, Anton Corbin. He directed A Most Wanted Man and The American, two both well-received uh, slow burn kind of spy thrillers. So that's my direction. One of the things too, I watched a little bit of the series, and I watched a little bit of you know I read the description of the book, and I just think overall, both of those two things, there's they're just too dense 
do fit into one movie. So I kind of just took the general concept of uh, the book and the show and the movie and kind of just did my own thing of like a, a spy kind of having to go against his, you know, former rival kind of a thing uh, with a similar kind of tone. Uh, so this is my plot. Vladimir, a Russian general and spy, is in a hotel room gathering his things as quickly as possible when he is ambushed and killed. That night, George Smiley, a retired British intelligence officer during the Cold War, is contacted about Vladimir's death. And I forgot to say that this movie is set in present day. Uh, it is revealed that Vladimir was a double agent during the Cold War and worked for Smiley. When weeks go by with no news on his old friend, Smiley decides to figure out what happened to Vladimir. Smiley, who now works as a tailor, slowly goes back into his old life. He is reaching out to his old contacts, seeing what they know, and no one is talking. However, one day in the mail, Smiley gets an unmarked letter with a note inside that just reads Carla, spelled K-A-R-L-A. We learn Carla was Smiley's arch-rival during the Cold War, who was a Russian spy. In the slow burn thriller, we learn that Carla has moved on to human trafficking since his Cold War days, and that Vladimir was trying to catch him and stop him, and that is why he was killed. Smiley, deciding to finish what his friend started, decides to trap his old nemesis. Using his contacts, he poses as a buyer and arranges for a meeting. There is a final confrontation between the two old spies with monologues between them. The movie ends with Smiley shooting Carla in an alley and walking off into the sunset back to his normal life. Uh, and for my cast, uh, for the role of Smiley, I went with Pierce Brosnan. Uh, for the role of Vladimir, I went for, with Dolph Lundgren. And then for my rule of one must feature a cameo from an original cast member because Carla doesn't really pop in until the very end in the, in the original show. It's six episodes and he doesn't go until the final episode. I used it for that rule. And for the role of Carla, I went with Alan Rickman, who appeared in the original series. And that is my pitch. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I think we forgot to mention with the, the rule for the uh, original cast member because so many of these shows are old, we can use... You know, that doesn't matter if an actor is still living or not. So yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely want to see something else with Alan Rickman. It's a good choice. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's an interesting direction to go with it. Um, a little different from the original story, but you kind of kept uh, a lot of the qualities of a classic John McCarray book. So I like that. So Tristan, what uh, did you do with Smiley's People? So for my Smiley's people, I mentioned my director up top was Guy Ritchie. He just did Wrath of Man, which I think is like a big comeback vehicle for him. So I'm really excited to see what he does next. And I think a, a thriller kind of spy action movie would be the perfect fit for him. Now I use the same rule as Joe. I did a cameo from the original series, but I use a different actor. I'll get to it as I go along here. Uh, but my cast, my cast for Smiley is Denzel Washington. I think you could play a good, like he's a big name action star who's a little bit towards the end of his career a bit, so I could see him playing this kind of coming back to his old spy route, similar to Alec Guinness in the original. Uh, and he's a retired spy who's brought back to the fold when his previous partner is, is suddenly murdered unexpectedly. Uh, and they think it might be tied to their work together, so all of a sudden he's in danger, and he's kind of thrust back into the spy game here. He has to rely on his old relationships, uh, as well as facing a uh, changing generation of spycraft. Mine's also set in the modern times, and I wanted to get that conflict of, like, new technology compared to Denzel Washington, who's used to older technology, and there's this new idea of, like, tracking on your phone, of drones, of cameras everywhere, that kind of stuff. I wanted to get an element of the conflict of new technology, something that they obviously couldn't have addressed in the original necessarily, and I think it's something that is really prominent in modern culture. Uh, 
I have him team up with a new spy who's kind of like the new blood of the operation, uh, Private Michael B. Jordan. I think that would be a fun way to kind of being a passing the torch almost between Denzel Washington and Michael B. Jordan, where Michael B. Jordan's this big up-and-coming name. Everybody knows him all of a sudden, and he's doing his directorial debut. He's like a huge name in Hollywood, and Denzel was that for a while. So I want to give this moment of Denzel and Michael B. Jordan together on screen as a, a bit of a passing of the torch here. Uh, and the leader of the circus, who's sort of the uh, the circus is the name of the of the group that he works for, the spy over operation. Uh, having put that Patrick Stewart, who is a cameo from the original series, he played Carla in the original show. So I have a nice kind of subversion. He played the big bad guy in the original, so he's playing kind of the leader of the circus here in this one. And my version of Carla, who's a leader of this kind of rebel group, is played by, um, I guess go up for it, Dave Batista. I think he's once again on a cool hot streak of his career, so I think it could be a fun role for him to take on, lead into his strengths, but also give him a chance to get beyond, like just simply being the big brute guy, you know. And I think it could—that's uh, kind of what I was going for. Just this spy thriller, Michael B. Jordan, Denzel Washington, kind of side by side, uncovering the mystery of this. And we get sort of towards the end. There's a bit of a twist where the circus that he was working for, the people he's worked for his whole career, are not necessarily the bad guys, but they have a very insidious motivations you know they they don't want to i think the best part of the spy thrillers are not necessarily like straight bad guys and good guys there's all kinds of people on each side and they're not they're all kind of playing their own games you know so i ended up making patrick stewart kind of in the end scene have this conversation with denzel washington where he tells him like hey look we do what we got to do for us and that's all it is like it's kind of what i want to go for this like denzel washington is coming back into the spy game and He's realizing why he left in the first place. You know, he's realizing, oh, it's a selfish place where people are out for their own games. Nobody tells you everything that's going on. And in the end, it's dangerous for the spies. You know, it was what put my partner in danger. He was put into a job that he didn't, wasn't prepared for, that he didn't know the full stakes of, and then he was sabotaged by Circus, by Patrick Stewart's character himself. So I think you kind of get this, who you trust isn't who uh, you think you trust and who you who is on your side, not necessarily on your side. I think that's the kind of the fun of the spy thriller. Like I said, Denzel Washington and Michael B. Jordan would be a fun duo, and I'd really like to see them together in this kind of movie, and I'd like to see Guy Ritchie do it. So that's my pitch for Smiley's People. Okay, interesting. Two, definitely two different directions with that. We have like yeah. the Guy Ritchie kind of uh, big, uh, fun spy thriller, and then the more kind of gritty, slow-paced uh the most wanted man style uh, spy thriller with Joe's. So, um, Bobby, do you have any questions for them before they start their arguments? Uh, I only, I didn't really have any question on, on Joe's. I, I got, I pretty much understood his pitch for Tristan, um, which is kind of funny with uh, Guy Ritchie doing Man from Uncle already, uh, another spy TV show that he turned into a movie. Is that going to be more in the tone of? of that movie with a little bit more fun into it, or is it going to be more of a straight up spy thriller? It's much more serious. I think Wrath of Man was the inspiration because that was, it was still somewhat of a big movie, but it was a lot more grounded than Guy Ritchie's been recently. So I want him to get a bit more towards that. He still has the fun scale to it, but a bit more groundedness, a bit more of a, of a realism to it. So a bit of a merge between Mad of Uncle and, and Wrath of Man was what I was going for. Cause that was, those are the two movies I watched in preparation for this pitch. Okay. So less jokey. All right. That's all I had. All right. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think I have a question. My, my one question for Joe, um, because I did like your pitch a lot, but I, I think, um, my one question is because your film, 
obviously, is done by a director who gets a lot out of his actors. Do you think that Dolph Lundgren is the right choice for, like, a guy in, like, a serious, like, dramatically acted uh, uh, kind of thriller? Uh, my thing with that is Dolph Lundgren is really just kind of in the opening scene. He's not, he's basically, he's the, like, because he's the one that gets killed in the opening scene, and he's the one that drives uh, Pierce Brosnan oh. like out of retirement. So he's not like throughout the whole movie. He's like in the basically the opening scene is he's like in his hotel room. You could tell he's in a hurry, and that's when he gets ambushed and killed. So you know, okay, okay. So, so like he's not be- in it much. So he's, you're not asking a yeah. ton from him. It's yeah. like the beginning of Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, where like yeah. ghost spies get killed in like the opening scene. Yeah, basically. In the rest of the movie. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Um, all right. Well, then, that being said, so Joe gave the uh, the first pitch, so he gets a minute on the clock when he starts talking, when Bobby's ready. All right. Tell me when you're yeah. ready because I'm ready. Whenever you start. All right. So, yeah, one of my main things against Tristan is he kept using, like, action and, like, with. I mean, I understand Dave Bautista can be a dramatic role, but uh, I feel like one of the things with, like, Smiley's People and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and those books and movies and shows is that it's like not really kind of an action franchise it's more of like that slow burn kind of like realistic spy thing and i and i like that that's what separates it from the other you know spy movies like mission impossible or um man from uncle or all these other spy franchises so like the fact that it's kind of this more not as actiony as those and i really like that and another thing too is smiley's people is very much like a super british franchise like george smiley is a very iconic british character 15 seconds feel like casting denzel washington it's like to me it's like casting you know like shia labeouf as the next james bond it's like you know sure he's a good actor and maybe he fits kind of the look but it should be a british actor playing george smiley and that's why i want pierce brosnan all right tristan whenever you're ready oh yeah so for my i'm gonna say that i change it up but like i cast Denzel Washington, I cast like Americanized actors in these roles because I want it to feel different. We've seen a lot of gritty kind of grounded spy thrillers. You know, we got Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. We got, we get, we get those a lot. Like even The Courier that came out last year was a kind of a gr- British spy thriller and it was nothing. Like people don't really care about British spy thrillers that like in that way anymore. So I think adding an injection of action and an injection of fun without like overwhelming it with action, overwhelming it with ridiculousness, just a little bit of the Guy Ritchie, uh, edge to it would be what would make it kind of more enjoyable and more exciting for me to watch and i think uh my casting i really like a lot i think michael b jordan and denzel washington would be a great dynamic between the two of them together and sure they're not british seconds. but like they can fit the spy roles here and patrick stewart's still in it you know i think that's kind of a cameo from the original it carries over to the original without just being the same original over again and it kind of feels like yours uh, changed the story, but the whole movie kind of feels the same. And I, I kept the similar beats of the story, but I changed the feel, I changed mm-hmm. the tone a bit, I changed the look. All right. Cool. All right, so, Joe, you get two minutes whenever you are ready. All right, so, yeah, um, like you said, you, you know, changed the look, you changed the tone, you changed the feel, you changed the storyline. Like, at the end of the day, uh, I feel like you just kind of took the title and were like, I'm making my own spy thing to a thing that's like not even, you know, a thing that uh, Smiley's people fans would be interested in. And I think that's kind of the death of basically all reboots and remakes is if like the fans of the original property 
don't like it that usually kind of spreads to everybody else we're sure okay i changed the plot but i feel like you kind of have to because i think i don't think there's any way that that plot of that book uh could or original show could fit into a movie so i think you're kind of forced to fit the plot where i still kind of stuck with that tone i kept it you know a british uh movie it's you know similar kind of themes and all of that so i feel like that stuck and i feel like people can still be into it and i feel like slow burn movies do still uh are popular like you said they're not popular but then you also are like oh we already have those with girl with the dragon tattoo we also have a lot of generic one minute spy action movies you know like the equalizer and you know all of these other ones that always come out so i don't know you know maybe we get a bunch of each but i feel like mine can be will get less lost in the shuffle because of you know my director's uh pedigree where yours is more hit and miss uh when it comes to his films that's all i got yeah i concede my 30 seconds (laughs) you mentioned that uh i just took smiley's title and did my own thing and that's like the opposite of what it did like i had the exact same premise with smiley's people and i have like the same general plot piece of Smiley's people. I condensed it a lot, like it, but it's still the similar idea of a retired spy coming back to the fold, having to uncover this mystery of his dead partner, and uh, taking Michael B. Jordan kind of into it. I wanted to have that duel of the two generations to kind of make the change that a remake requires. Like you want something to be different when you're remaking a movie, especially this many years later. So I have that idea of the two clashing generations, and you also have uh, Guy Ritchie. I think uh, would be a much a really exciting director to make this movie because I think he's on the radar now. Once again, like Wrath of Man put him back on the radar and now people are kind of looking forward to see what he would do next and what direction his career is going to go. And I think this is the exact direction for his career. I think it's something that people would be excited for because he's back in their minds. It could be a nice comeback vehicle for the director. I think this is just a really interesting move for him. And I think one minute, like yours is is British, sure, but like that's the only thing you have similar to the original. Like, <laughs> I guess his partner dies in that one too. But like, you talk about how you want to keep the original fans, but like, there's more than just having British people in the movie to make the original fans come through. Like, you want it to be the original premise, kind of done in a slightly new, slightly modern way. But you also want to appeal to other people. I don't know what Smiley's people has never heard of before, so I want. But I know who Guy Ritchie is, I know who Denzel Washington is, I know who Michael B. Jordan is. So I'd be there for this movie along with the, along with the fans and mine appeals to both fans and new viewers so i think that's exactly what this movie should be going for it's an old show an old book so i don't appeal to old fans appeal to a lot of people appeal to movie fans who want to see what guy Ritchie does next to michael b jordan fans and the washington 15 fans. seconds you got you cover the whole mat on my movie so i think mine just sounds like a much more exciting much more interesting movie that would be a headline making kind of really big movie for the industry and yours just feels like one that would come out and be one of the multiple many spy thrillers that just gets forgotten by the end of the year. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, those arguments were solid. Um, Bobby, uh, I'm making the final decision. I might need your help. Uh, what What did you think uh, of these pitches? What would you go with? So this was pretty close for me because I do like when Guy Ritchie does do kind of these spy thriller movies. Um, but to me, it came down to more of a fit to Smiley's people and what I would kind of want to see and like the tone that I would, um, that's, it just sounded better, like more intriguing to me. And that was Joe's, um, the kind of the take he went, the more of the tone, keeping the British style. I do like the slow burn kind of spy thriller over kind of a more big kind of guy Ritchie for this, especially 
Guy Ritchie is best, I feel like, when he does work in the British setting. So making Guy Ritchie the director and then making it American, I feel like that fit for a British show is kind of kind of odd. So it's close for me. I do like both pitches, but uh, I'm leaning Joe. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's tough because I, I feel like kind of like the Seth MacFarlane thing on the last pitch. Like as soon as Tristan said it was going to be Denzel Washington as George Smiley, I was like, I'm out. And then he fought, and and I got his movie more, and I kind of liked it more as it went on. Um, but I do think overall, I do agree with Bobby, where if I'm going to see, yeah, I think Tristan's would obviously make more money at the box office, but Joe's is the movie that I'd be more into because I love Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I was super passionate about my pitch for um, the Constant Gardener, because I like a good kind of slow burn political spy thriller. I would have really liked either pitch if like Ray Fiennes was your George Smiley. I don't necessarily love Pierce Brosnan in that role, um, but I do think he's a better fit than making it more Americanized, um, especially with Guy Ritchie. I, th- I think if Tristan wanted to go full on like Guy Ritchie, make it more exciting, make it way different than something we saw and had jason statham's take on george smiley and made it more of an action thriller i think that would have been more of a fit Mm -hmm. but his movie doesn't necessarily sound like uh kind of like the classic like british uh spy thriller that uh i'd be into if i'm going to see this um and i think that that's basically kind of what it came down to i think joe's just he changed enough of the plot and updated it where it's not exactly the same as what we've seen before but kept a lot of the same elements uh story-wise and kind of the same tone so i think that overall won me over with with joe's but tristan i think i was really down on his and he kind of sold me more on it as it went on so it was closer than i thought it would originally be but i I think at the end of the day gotta go with joe i think when tristan started i'm like oh i got this in the bag and then as he started talking i'm like (laughs) okay i may actually have to fight this one and i will say the whole human trafficking thing uh, i always felt like oh this is kind of new and different something i haven't seen like really touched on in a movie and then i saw black widow and then i was debating should i change my plot or not and then i was like ah fuck it i might just keep it Still well i'd it. like you, you i'd like kind it. of a um it kind of reminded me of like the taken type angle but instead of like a uh like an Revenge action movie thriller. kind of that with more of a, a spy thing so i, I kind of like those elements kind of interacting and i like your director choice i think that was a perfect uh director choice for the movie that you pitched um, but I, I do think uh, if you're going former James Bond for George Smiley, I think Timothy Dalton would have been. Yeah. Awesome. I was debating. Yeah. I was debating yeah. between yeah. the two. And then I, because uh, Alan Rickman turned down the role uh, that Sean Bean got, I thought it was kind of cool to like eventually have them oh, yeah. interact. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, that ties it up at 1-1. Tristan, you lost that one. What are you going with next? All right. So my next pick is going to be Alias, uh, the 2007 movie uh, <laughs> from the J.J. Abrams show. All right, Alias. Uh, the film people might not remember as much as the show, but it came out in 2007. It got a 61% of Rotten Tomatoes, so it was fresh. Um, but it was written and directed by Jennifer Gardner, the show's lead star. And uh, the reason for this is there was very little backing from the studio causing the film to be released as a TV special a year after the show was uh, canceled. So the show, you know, she wanted to really push a theatrical release for a movie and was super into it. And the studio was never behind it. And then 
it kind of just got forgotten about after the uh, series ended. Uh, Alias was never a show that I was really into, so I'm interested to see your guys' pitches. I have much more history with Dexter's Lab, and I, I'm a big fan of Smiley's People, the book, and the and the old show, and John Lacari book, so I'm interested to see your pitches on something that I have almost no familiarity with. I've never yeah, even seen our, a second of the episode of this. Our, our parents loved this show when it was on, and I watched quite a few episodes yeah. of it, Johnny, with them, and it was good. I just never watched the entire series, but it's a fun yeah. spy show. All right. Well, I watched the pilot. I, it was entertaining. I watched it like a week ago. So perfect. So uh, Tristan, who did you say is going first? I'll go first on this one. All right, Tristan, you get a minute on the clock. Or no, just kidding. You're pitching. <laughs> you get a minute to pitch. No, minute to pitch. Yeah. <laughs> Tristan, uh, tell tell us your alias movie. Look, it might have worked for this one because the role I'm using is make one a short film. Uh, there you go. And my director is. Uh, Carrie Sakalins, who just did Falcon and the Winter Soldier and really kind of broke out from that movie. So I think it could be a fun fit for this. I'm going for a spy action movie here, so we'll see how it goes. (laughs) Uh, I want to make it a short film kind of in the same vein of like Punisher's Dirty Laundry or like the Uncharted movie with Nathan Fillion where it's like you're getting a chance to kind of get back to the thing you love for like a one-off little thing. And maybe it takes off, maybe it doesn't, but it's here's a little chance to get get the fans of the show a chance to see the characters again because this is one of those shows that has like a cult following on the internet of people who are like, oh, we need more Alias, bring Alias back. It was so good. <laughs> so I think this could be a way to tribute them while also making it a cool short film that could kind of put the show back on the map for the streaming services. Uh, so my cast here, I brought back Jennifer Gardner as Sydney for the, a smaller role in this episode, or in this uh, short film here. And my lead here is Daphne Keene. Obviously, you know her from Logan as the young daughter of Logan. Uh, she plays Isabel, who's the daughter of Jennifer, Con- uh, Jennifer Gardner's character, Sydney. Uh, and the finale of the show, they kind of established she has this family and she's kind of moved with her family. And uh, But they do establish that her daughter, Isabel, also has kind of a gift for spy craftery. So there's a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of the show, of like, oh, is her daughter, her, her young daughter, going to be the next spy? So in my movie, I kind of took that premise up and I ran with Daphne Keene being essentially the, the spy and Jennifer Gardner being her kind of mom in the chair who's giving her uh, direction and kind of telling her what to do and looking through the cameras, that kind of uh, role. Uh, so we get the interactions. Uh, we can tell from that it's, we can tell from the interactions in this opening scene of that because Daphne Keene's character is taking down this child prostitute ring in the opening scene. So we get this in the interactions that like this is, they've trained a lot, but this is her first time really on like a on the ground, feet to the ground mission by herself. So she's trying to kind of prove herself here. Uh, so she's trying to take down this child prostitute ring and it doesn't quite go exactly well. She still saves them and still kind of catches the bad guy, but she makes a big mistake and almost, almost loses. So she gets kind of reprimanded by her mom saying, I guess you weren't ready and you gotta get home because we have parent teacher conferences tonight. <laughs> so they go and the, the next sequence here is them at parent teacher conferences. So you get that conflict of like the spy th- craft and then also like the family drama, which is something that alias as a show tried to lean into. So we had the parent-teacher conferences. I think that could be a really fun kind of comedic beat, too, where you see these spies in this school setting trying to act like they're just a normal mom, a normal daughter, and the teacher's telling them, like, oh, your daughter's kind of slacking off in class. She's not seen, doesn't seem to be studying too well anymore. She's dropping on her grades. And Jennifer is uh, – and then Sydney is kind of telling her daughter, like, look, you got to pay attention to school. This spy stuff is 
what we do on the side, but you still got to graduate. You can't get eyes on us, that kind of stuff. And while she's at the parent-teacher conferences, she reunites with Bradley Cooper's character, a, a bit of a cameo from Bradley Cooper, who was a big character in the original show. Uh, and he is working, he's not working undercover, but he's kind of just at this teacher conference with his own kids. You know, he's there in the own setting as, as Jennifer Gardner's character is, and he kind of tips her off saying, oh, I heard you're kind of doing your own thing now, so I've heard about this human trafficking plot that's going on, and now we get the second chance for Isabel to kind of prove herself, so we get a final scene here of Isabel kind of on boots on the ground, taking on this human trafficking plot. Her mom is very hesitant to let her go out, but she kind of talks her into it and says, look, I, I messed up last time. I know I did, but here's my chance to prove it, prove I'm doing it right, and we get the final takedown. She comes and takes on this human trafficking ring and takes them all down, and kind of frees everyone. And then our last, she goes home, hits in with her parents, kind of a nice like family moment. And then we get a scene where Isabel is recruited by Bradley Cooper's character and you don't quite know what her answer is gonna be, but she's asked by Bradley Cooper to join the program and become a spy. And that's kind of a, a bit of a cliffhanger ending. So that they wanted to continue this on as a new show or a new series of movies that can go from there and have Daphne Keene be our lead and maybe Jennifer Gardner as like a side character. But that's my pitch for Alias. Yeah. Okay, so kind of a All sequel right. short film. I kind of like it. Cool. Kind of like a dark Enola Holmes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Joe, Joe what, do you, what do you got for us? All right, so uh, I'll start with my rule. My rule I used is uh, one must feature a cast of all women. And one of the things, uh, just to preface, like my idea is not like that they work for like an all-female spy agency or anything like that. It's just like this is, you know, regular spy agency. It's just all the characters in our movie happen to be women so uh my director is uh catherine bigelow uh for the role of sydney bristow instead of jennifer garner i have Haley steinfeld and then obviously uh because of my rule instead of her dad being a major portion of it it would be her mom jackie bristow played by Catherine zeta jones and then for the role of marcia dixon we have viola davis and then for carla sloan we have uh jamie lee curtis so uh, I said after watching the pilot, uh, one aspect of it really got my attention, and that was definitely like the father-daughter aspect, and so I kind of want to go in that direction, but uh, more of like a mother-daughter thing, because it's something we haven't really seen a whole lot, especially in like an action franchise. So in my movie, Sydney Bristow realizes the organization she works for, SD6, is not an arm but for the CIA, but is actually a target of it. And uh, when she threatens SD6, she goes from one of their top operatives to their number one target. Who mother, her mother, who she discovers is a high-ranking member of SD6, disavows the organization and goes on the run with their daughter to protect her. The movie focuses on the strained mother-daughter relationship of the leads as they learn who each other truly are while also being on the run. I said it's a little bit Logan, a little bit Thelma and Louise, and a little bit Mission Impossible. And that's my pitch. Okay. okay. All right. Kind of like the uh, a women version of the Die Hard movie with the Australian guy, Jack. Great <laughs> movie. Women not, version yeah. of the die. But a little bit better people <laughs> I behind had the scenes. To get there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that die was Die Hard with uh with his son. I don't know. Live free and die, die hard. Or... I think it was called. No, that was yeah, the... it's, it's live okay. free or die. Live Wait. free or die hard. Is it? Because I thought that was like the decent fourth one. A good no, day to die that's... hard is the shitty is the one with the yeah. Sword. Good day to die hard oh. is the oh, okay. No, oh, there's the names of the names of that <laughs> yeah, franchise have, are all they're almost as bad as the Fast and Furious yeah. movies. Yeah, die they hard, might be worse. Die Hard Two, Die yeah. Harder, 
uh, a good day to do play. die hard with a vengeance <laughs> yeah the best one yeah that's the best one all right um bobby do you have any questions for them not really. I mean, I understand both of them. I guess for Tristan, because yours is a short film that could lead into a TV series, I guess, how does it differentiate itself from a pilot? I, I didn't necessarily make this a pilot. I mentioned, I mentioned I wanted to connect to, like, the Uncharted short film and the Dirty Laundry short film, which aren't necessarily pilots, but they're like, hey, if you like this, maybe hire on Nathan Fillion to do more stuff, you know? It's not necessarily a pilot, but it's a contained mm -hmm. story. You know, you have a beginning, middle, and end, and then you have a little bit of a cliffhanger if, if they wanted to continue a franchise onward from there but i definitely had a confined story like the his arcs for the characters beginning middle and end with the mildly all relationships so yeah not necessarily a pilot but enough of a cliffhanger to make you want more okay got it as someone who uh just recently started playing the uncharted games i beat the last two in the last or the first two games in the last week i'm into that nathan fillion thing um my question for Tristan is, I feel like the show, now I don't know much about it, but Jennifer Garner is older, obviously, than Daphne Keene is, and she's, you know, out of college or whatever, and she's a spy. The whole idea of Alias, I feel like she's, like, going undercover and stuff. How does that... I don't really see, like, a kid like Daphne Keene being, like, this yeah. spy that is going undercover in these places and people aren't just being like, why is this kid here? Like, I don't get the connection of a kid being an alias. Like it doesn't necessarily, I like your pitch, but it doesn't necessarily seem to be what I get from like reading the description of the show. So just kind of explain why you went younger with it. I went younger with it because I wanted to make it the mom daughter relationship from the original, but also I involved like child trafficking and child prostitution, like things that a kid could be undercover within. Like my idea was when she's taking down the child prostitution ring to the opening scene, she's like undercover as a kid among these child prostitutes. And that's kind of her role. And then when she's taking down this child trafficking ring at the final scene, she's undercover as a kid among these traffic kids. And it's something only a kid could be able to pull off. You can't put Jennifer Connelly in the original show, like a college-age person among these children. They'd stand out too much. So I wanted to lean into the, the child aspect and the undercover aspect and have her be only she could pull that off. You know, only the daughter from the original show could pull that off. Jennifer Connelly as, a, as an adult couldn't pull Gardner. that off. Jennifer Gardner. You know, too many things going on. Or Jennifer Connelly. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So based off that, I have one other question. Is she doing this on her own, or did an organization send a child <laughs> into be an undercover child trafficked sex slave? No, she's a little problematic if she's sent in by an organization. No, she's doing it on her own. Her and her okay. mom had this kind of spy operation. They've been running themselves apart from the from the whole organization. So, like, so her mom does it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the whole premise of the show. Like, yeah, the, like that was my main thing. So it's Batman bringing a 12-year-old into a, a fight with guns. If you yeah. watch Alias, you know that the organization she works for is not necessarily the good guys. Like, they do a lot of problematic, questionable yeah, things. Good. And I think the fact that, like, they're sending this kid into danger is supposed to be problematic. Like, you're supposed to be like, oh, God, they're putting this kid in the front line. That's that's bad. Like, you're okay. supposed to see the problems of, of this of these characters. Okay, that clears that up a bit. That's what yeah. I was wondering. I was just like, wait, so, like... I was picturing it as like an MI6, like a James Bond type thing, and then sending a child to be like, yeah, you're going to be a sex slave and we're no. going to put you in danger. But no, that's like, that makes I, more I, sense. 
what I do know about Alias is that through the, throughout the show, you realize how kind of bad the organization is, uh, and that's one of the main plot lines. So, Got it, got it, got it. All right. I think I wrapped my head around that. Um, I didn't know much about the show, so that helps me understand Tristan's plot better. Um, I like both pitches here a lot. I think this is going to be a close fight. And we're both judging and this. We are, yeah, judging this together, so hopefully we have a consensus. Joe gave, or Tristan gave his uh, pitch first, so he'll get his minute on the clock when he starts talking. What I really like about mine is that it it's faithful to the original with the cast, but you don't need to watch the original to know what's going on. You you need this, the opening scene is enough to establish like, oh, okay, it's this mother daughter spy uh, ring, and there's these questionable morals going on with, with the with the young woman. Like, you don't need to watch the original show, but if you have, you get the extra level of, of joy. You know, you're seeing the characters you know brought to life. And I think mine walks that middle ground perfectly. Of if you like the show, you're in love with this because you're seeing the new characters. But if you don't you know the show, you're just vaguely familiar. You're like, oh, it's that spy show from seconds. the early 2000s or whatever. You get to see that here. So I think mine gets both audiences, and I think it short and sweet, in and out kind of spy fun. I think that fits for this kind of a thing. Back to something you know from the early 2000s for a short little burst of fun and nostalgia for some people, and then maybe more after that. But you just get this one short film that brings Ten. you back to nostalgia. So I think mine is good for that. And Joe's doesn't necessarily, as a fan, I wouldn't necessarily be into Joe's as much as I'd be into mine. You can take my three seconds, Joe. You suck. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And just so you guys know, like if you run a little, if you're, you can finish a thought within like five or whatever seconds yeah. after the countdown runs out. So I, I just want to let you know without interrupting your last few seconds. Yeah. As long as that thought countdown. isn't Joe sucks after yeah. the time. Yeah. Uh, right. You ready? Yep. All right. So, yeah, I think partially I feel like Tristan's almost trying to have it both ways where it's like, okay, if you're like not a fan of the show or fan of the show, you can enjoy the short. Uh, but also I feel like if you're not a fan of the show, you're not really going to understand like the whole like problematic and the fact that the organization kind of sucks. You're just going to be watching it and be like, this mom's just a shitty mom sending her daughter into like this child sex ring. Like I feel like. Maybe you'll be able to understand it if you're not a fan, but I don't think you'll really care, and I think you'll just be kind of confused about everything. And then thirty seconds, like that at the beginning, and then it moves to like a parent-teacher conference scene, which you know everybody loves parent-teacher conferences and loves watching those. So I don't know if that's really gonna draw people in. I feel like with mine, you have like that mother-daughter dynamic, uh, but it's kind of similar to the show while doing its own thing. Uh, it takes it in a different direction. So if you're a fan of the show, you get similar aspects. But if you've never seen an episode, it's not really tied to the show in any way. Okay. All right. So Tristan, you get two minutes whenever you're ready. <clears throat> okay. So you mentioned that mine wants to have it both ways. And that's like literally what I want to do. Like that's what you should go for with something like this. You want to appeal to the fans of the original without being too faithful to the original, without being so tied up to being a sequel that you're confused and i think mine doesn't necessarily do that and you mentioned like oh parents do conferences who wants to watch that and it's like that's that's the joke of the scene like these are this is a funny scene that's a contrast between the action of the opening sequence and then this parentage conference is like this mother-daughter dynamic is one time on the spy thriller side and the other time on the actual like parent teacher mother-daughter side so you get both elements of that relationship and just in the short film so i think the parent teacher conference scene adds a lot to that where you're getting these what would be traditional mother-daughter roles but they're filled by these spy characters and you mentioned like if you don't 
no, they originally might not get that these are it's a problematic organization. And you can easily get that in like a couple lines of dialogue, you know, like when she makes her mistake in the opening scene and she's leaving and saying like, oh, I, I was too bold or whatever. One mistake. You can get uh, Jennifer Gardner's character being like, look, I left this organization for a reason. There are these problems, this problem, and I don't want you to be part of that or suck into that. And just in one line, you can establish the fact that <laughs> there were problematic dynamics in the original original show without having to watch the whole original show. So I think mine, you mentioned Couches both, tries to have both ways, and that's exactly what I wanted to do, both ways. And you have a great lead in Daphne Keene, a backup of Jennifer Gardner. I think mine just feels like a really fun follow-up to the original while also seconds. being appealing to new fans who aren't familiar with the original. And maybe you'll get people to go back and watch the old original show to get more from the characters. So that's my pitch. I think it sounds like a, as a fan of the show, I'd watch it. And as a fan of kind of spy fillers, I'd watch it. So I'm into it. Okay. All right, Joe, whenever you're ready. Uh, yeah, I'm still not fully like wrapping my head around the idea of uh, the mom being like, I left this shitty problematic organization where they made me do all this, you know, dangerous and like maybe not so great stuff. And because of that, I'm sending you into a child sex ring. I feel like, you know, like ch- kids in action scenes against adults or situations like that aren't really believable. It's really only believable with Daphne Keene and Logan because she has powers going up against non-powered people. I feel like you know, that's why we've never really seen a live-action Robin work, because I just, I just don't think, like, the idea of all oh, this kid fighting adults is really ever going to, you know, be believable and make sense. I feel like with mine, it's, you know, an older, she's, you know, post-college. Uh, it's also a dynamic we haven't really seen before in this genre of, like, this older mom, or, like, this older daughter and her mom uh, on the run like that. I haven't, no, I can't really think of any movie. I think Catherine Bigelow is a great director for something like this. I think my cast is great for this i feel like i still not fully bought on if you're not a fan of alias you're uh you know caring about tristan's uh short story where mine i feel like people that are fans of alias can understand like the parallels between my movie and the show and if you've never seen an episode uh you don't really need to see the show at all to understand anything you don't need to go back to the show to uh fully understand the characters like tristan said you would in his um and uh yeah, that's all I got. I don't need another full minute to just repeat the same points against Tristan's. Okay. All right. Well, Johnny and I did not. Well, we have a couple little things here right now. But do, what are your thoughts, Johnny? Um, my my thoughts are this. I think, I mean, Tristan's compared his to uh, the Nathan Fillion Uncharted short film which is 14 minutes long and it's about him getting captured and trying to escape a gang basically and um, Punisher Dirty Laundry, which is 10 minutes long. And it's basically just, he sees these guys, you know, this gang and beats him up and kills him at the end. And I think Tristan just tried to fit way too much into that. I think Tristan's works really well as a full length feature, but I think if his story was very simple and it was, you get a very brief, like, okay, she's undercover. Maybe she's on the radio and you get like brief exposition. And then it's her escaping this or stopping these people. And it's like 15 minutes. I think that works better for a short film, but Tristan got into the mother daughter dynamic and getting into a prequel of the show or whatever, or a sequel to the show and stuff. And I just think Tristan tried to fit too much in that. I don't think works um, as what he set up as a short film. I think overall, 
if both were feature length films, I think Tristan's might work better, but that wasn't what was pitched. And I think Joe's just, I could see that story actually playing out. Um, I just think Tristan tried to fit too much into something that would be a little, a little short. I think he should have just stuck like very straight and narrow to one singular kind of plot and thrown it in. I really love Daphne Keene and I think that could have been interesting, but I just don't see that necessarily working as a short film as much. So I think that is kind of my tiebreaker because I think it was close, but I think at the end of the day, Joe's just as a fleshed out Catherine Bigelow directed film, I think would be something that could tell a compelling story. Um, and, and I think that's kind of what it, what it comes down to. I like Joe's cast a lot. I like, uh, I like his uh, directing choice too. So I think that's, uh, it was very close, but just, that that's my my uh my little decision on it so bobby do you agree with me or are we gonna have to fight it out i do want yeah, to know a short film can be 50 minutes or shorter yeah. so like you don't I, have to right minutes well for 40 minutes or shorter for oscar stuff so i picture it as that so i just think i mean yes if it's like 40 minutes okay but i do think it's a lot for something in short film yeah. to like get into so, the family dynamic that's that's kind of so here's I'm what i'll say lost. Like, i'll say we won't have to fight it out because johnny i was waiting on your text and you you agreed with me and basically just reiterated kind of both our points in your kind of decision that you said but basically yeah i think tristan if it was a full length it would have been closer but i think joe had a full fleshed out like i could see his movie and picture it yours because you are making it 40 minutes or so or longer it does still it like to me it just sounds like a pilot still for a new alias tv show because that's probably about the length of time that those would be instead of a short film um but regardless of that point of like the length and like the tv show i think just uh i i would in a short film i prefer a more simple plot and i think that joe in a full length version of his movie just sounded a little bit better to me but it's close like tristan it's like it's just a little things that added up like to me it was a pretty close fight but um i think just joe's i could picture that a little bit better i I think with um just trying to introduce stuff and all that i think it works better as a full length i think tristan with his plot could have made his a really really interesting horror film um, and I think that's what I would have liked kind of the direction to go towards. And I think he just didn't go fully with, with the plot, but Daphne Keene being caught in this horrific scenario and maybe being trapped in this area, trying to rescue these girls that are, uh, you know, being sex trafficked or something and making it more of a horror film. I think that could have been really, really good and definitely would have won you the point. But I think at the end of the day, Joe uh, Joe edged that one out, but it was close. And I'm interested to see what you guys have next because we don't really have any today that have been runaway winners. So I'm waiting for one of you to just blow us away with one pitch and kind of blow the other out of the water. So Tristan, what do you got for us to blow us out of the water with your next your next movie? I'll do my best. Uh, let's go with Gilligan's Island. Oh, fuck, I thought that's there. Really we go. Joe doesn't sound super. I don't, confident I don't know. I feel like this is either going to be a, go really well for me or really poorly for me. I have a few like yeah, that way. Big. I, I have a few better four movies. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. So we're gonna go. <laughs> Gilligan's Island. The film was released in 1996. It got an 11% around Tomatoes. The director uh, was Betty Thomas, who also did the Brady Bunch movie. And. Uh, the IMDb description or the Wikipedia description of why the movie failed is 
Betty Thomas followed up the Brady Bunch movie with a parody of Gilligan's Island in 1996. The movie failed to bring the charm of her first take on a 60s show, but is quoted by Howard Stern as the main reason he chose her to direct his film, Private Parts, due to his love of Jim Varney's almost grotesque performance as Gilligan. So if you haven't seen the original, it's something to witness. And Howard Stern is probably its only fan. Um, so there we go. There's the Gilligan's Island. And Tristan, who did you say is going first? I'll go first on this one. All right. Well, what do you got for us for the Gilligan's Island? I have a sense where Joe is going. I'm interested to see what you're doing with it. I made my Gilligan's Island a horror movie. Uh, yes. <laughs> Ooh, I like it. This will be a fun battle. So for my uh, my director, I have John Krasinski, obviously hot off of Quiet Place 2, and he said he doesn't necessarily want to come back to do Quiet Place 3, but he likes the horror genre, and he'd like to work with him that again. So I'm giving him a chance to do that here. Uh, so my premise here is that when a cruise ship of various strangers crashes on a, on a deserted island, a ragtag group of survivors must struggle to work together to survive. However, on the first night, on the island, a mutilated dead body is found, and they realize there's a killer among them. And essentially a slasher movie with the characters of Gilligan's Island. And you get, like, this slowly decaying of the relationships where they don't know who to trust. And you, as the audience, don't know who the killer is. You're seeing slasher scenes like Friday the 13th-type scenes, but you're not, you don't know who the killer is. They're masked. So you have to kind of uncover the dynamics of these relationships and kind of solve the mystery as you're watching along with the characters. And... My idea is that they sent out a message to uh, the, the to the to the Air Force or whatever they need to do the rescue the Coast Guard I guess you could call and they say oh we'll be there in like seventy two hours so they got to survive three nights on this island with a killer among them and you get kind of like that counting clock tension in this movie and I'll go through my cast uh, right here I got Gilligan he's kind of under underestimated fool character who is our lead and ultimately kind of gross and being the foolish outsider to the one they all kind of rely on by the end. And I had them played by Lakeith Stanfield. The character Lovey Howell, the rich kind of socialite who's the older woman who has suitcases and suitcases full of clothes despite being like a, a couple of days of a, long of a cruise, is played by Jessica Lang. I think she could pull off that like snobby rich woman pretty well. Uh, Thurston Howell, a rich and cruelly bold Hollywood producer. He's like the really ri the richest of the rich among them. I had him played by Stellan Skarsgård. And he's the one who gets killed opening night. So he has a small role in the movie. And then opening night, he's killed. And I'll get into it in a second here. But like throughout the first day, you see like all of his characters have reasons that they would want to kill this rich asshole. Because, <laughs> of course, Gilligan's getting bullied by him because he's like the, the outcast. He's not really like the rest of them. And he's making tons of moves on the attractive women of the camp. So he's a target for everyone the first night. Uh, and Ginger... As a character from the original, of course, she's a hot young model who gets tons of attention from the survivors. She's kind of like the really hot girl among the cast, and I have put Anna Taylor-Joy in this. And Marianne, she's also a woman in the cast, but she's kind of the one who's often overlooked in favor of Ginger. And I have her played by Olivia Cook. She can play that kind of like uh, slight outcast like she does in Bates Motel or something like that, or even uh, Me, Girl, and Dying Girl. Girl. Yeah. And I have the professor, uh, the scientist. He's, I have him as like a science teacher in a college who is the moral center of the group, played by John Krasinski himself, the writer of the, or the director and writer of the movie. He likes, he casts himself in Quiet Place, so I think putting him in this supporting role here would be a good fit. And then I have the skipper. He's kind of the short-tempered uh, ship captain. He didn't want to get into all the situation. Now he's dealing with all these 
ridiculous passengers on this island that he was not ready for this. And he's played by John Goodman. I think he played that pretty well. And you get this dynamic where, of course, the first night Thurston is killed and everyone kind of is suspicious of each other. They're saying, oh, you know, Ginger, you were harassed by him last night. Of course, it was you. And, oh, Marianne, you're just jealous that he got, that I got his attention. You didn't, so it must have been you. And, oh, the skipper, you have such a short temper, it was probably you. And they immediately start turning on each other and you get this. And then, of course, the second night gets even harder because the killer is out there taking them down. They're running through the forest. They're all kind of separated. You get that tension there the second night and then the killer comes and takes out uh marianne olivia cook's character dies the second night and so did jessica lang's character so we got two kill two deaths the second night and now of course our survivors left are gilligan uh ginger the professor and the skipper so we're now we're, we're way way down in the cast here so the third night now they're all turning against each other oh god there's more deaths what are we gonna do and they all separate. They kind of have their own little clans of each other that they're faithful to. And the third night, it goes all off. You know, they're like, okay, this morning, in the morning, this Coast Guy's going to get here. All we got to do is make it through literally the night. <laughs> but, of course, as a horror movie does, it goes off the last night. And uh, we get the reveal here that the killer was Ginger, the hot young model who gets all the attention on Taylor Joy's character. She is the killer the whole time. Uh and you're, they were kind of right about Stellan Skarsgård. Like, he was harassing her, but she was like, oh, I didn't care about the harassment. I just killed him because he didn't cast me in a movie that he was casting. And there's this kind of backstory of, like, I think that's part of a horror movie. All the characters that you think are disconnected have these connections. And that you start to uncover that, like, throughout their lives, they all had these chance encounters with each other. And that kind of brings characters together. And then in the last scene, they uh, Gilligan and Lovey escape. Uh, the professor is killed in the last scene. The skipper kind of leads them out, and he's kind of the one who gets them off the island. And then they're kind of floating out on the on this like makeshift raft that the that uh, the professor built. And and the, on the floating out in the ocean, they get rescued by the coast guard. And you get this kind of cliffhanger ending of you get a reveal here that Lovey uh, Lo Lovey Howell herself was kind of involved in the killing too. So. Just even though Anna Taylor Joy was caught and left on the island, maybe the, the second killer also got away. So you have a bit of a horror movie twist at the end where the killer gets away and can come back for the sequel. And that's my pitch for Gilligan's Island as a horror movie, a slasher. You get these iconic characters from the island who are just kind of taken out one by one and turning against each other. And I think Jack and could pull it off really well. It's different from a quiet place, but it's still in the horror genre, so I'd be into it. And that's my pitch. All right, kind of an interesting new... Uh horror take for john krasinski I'm, I'm into it uh joe what do you got for your i'm guessing horror yeah. movie gilligan's island all right so i went in a slightly different direction and when uh tristan started to say who his director was i thought he was going to say my director and i thought we we're going to go in a very similar direction which is always a pain to fight against but my instead of john krasinski my director is uh jordan peele uh for the role of uh gilligan i have uh lucas hedges uh, for the skipper, I have Russell Crowe. Uh, for Thurston Howell III, the millionaire, I have Jason Isaacs and his wife. Um, this is how will be played by Laura Dern. Uh, for the role of Ginger, I have Emma Watson. And then for the professor, I have uh, Jeffrey Wright, who is uh, in the recent Bond movies, and he's also going to be uh, Commissioner Gordon in the next Batman movie. Uh, for the role of Marianne, I have uh, Laura Harrier, who is in Spider-Man Homecoming and Black Klansman. So... Uh, my movie is set in 1964, uh, which is when the uh, 
show premiered. And the three leads of my movie are mainly Gilligan, the professor, and Marianne, uh, with the skipper, the billionaires, and Ginger, uh, all kind of representing various uh, people in power. Uh, So after a big storm, they get marooned on an island during a tour. The professor, a botanist at Howard, tries telling the group what plants are edible and which aren't. However, uh, he's kind of ignored by pretty much everyone in the group except for Marianne and Gilligan. Uh, the rest eat poisonous plants and finally only listen to them, listen to him when on their deathbeds when he offers them an antidote. Afterward, as time passes and resources on the island get scarce, the group starts to turn on each other. Uh, those who are used to having power turn uh, against Marianne, Gilligan, and the professor. Uh, so we have the skipper who is, you know, starts to get very violent and aggressive, especially towards uh, the professor and Marianne. Uh, the millionaire shun Marianne and the professor from the camp, not wanting to be around them, uh, which will create kind of a level of mystery as Marianne and the uh, professor aren't really sure what's going on at the main camp. Uh, Ginger tries to befriend Marianne and acts kind to her, but when push comes to shove, she sides with the skipper and the millionaires. Uh, the horror comes a lot from the jump scares of the skipper kind of running out and uh, chasing the main leads that they have to eventually fight and not knowing who they can trust as the members of the tour uh, show their true colors throughout the movie. Uh, when our three leads finally defeat the others and uh, at the end and it looks like help is coming, Gilligan admits that he sabotaged the boat on purpose because he had been drafted to the Vietnam War and he knew whatever happened to him on the boat was better than what would happen in Vietnam. Uh, so he kind of rep- wanted to represent like that ally that you know, you thought was with you for the entire time, but he turns out he's kind of the reason for your demise. And then the ending of the movie is they see a ship off on the horizon, but they don't really know if it's here for rescue, if it even sees them, or if it's even looking for them. And uh, that's my pitch. Joe, I missed, I got all your casting except who is your Gilligan? Uh, Lucas Hedges. Lucas Hedges. Got it. Okay, that's what I missed. All right. Um, Bob, you have any questions for them? You're the one making the final decision on this. Um, I mean, nothing specific other than I just want both of you in your fights to kind of justify the type of horror movie you chose. Like, why did this fit for you for Gilligan's Island? Um, not really something that I need, like, you know, a specific answer right now, but just to kind of address it whenever you do do get to your fight. Yeah, I'd say my... my um... I think both of you went a little different directions with the horror that we've seen both these directors do. I think these are two of the top five horror directors working today. Um, but my main question, I guess, is for Joe of what we've seen in Get Out and what we've seen in Us is a lot of racial and societal commentary uh, on those movies. And I know your yours obviously is kind of doing that with the Vietnam thing, but I it seems like a kind of a different take of what Jordan Peele's shown us. So what in your movie kind of is uh, making me feel like it's a Jordan Peele movie and not just like any old horror movie? Uh, so one of the things with casting, you know, uh, you know, a black actress for Marianne and a black actor for the professor. One of the things I wanted to do is like, even though the professor has this job where he should be respected, you have most of the other crew is not respecting him and same uh with marianne that she's kind of ignored and it's kind of uh one of the things is like to show how like the million million basically the million everyone's marooned on this island together everyone's essentially equal but the millionaires because they have all this money 
which ultimately doesn't matter. They view themselves as better than everyone else on the group. And Ginger, who's used to being like popular and famous because she's a movie star again, views herself as like better than other people in the group, even though like there's five of us here. No one here is more famous than anyone else. And same with the skipper. He's used to being in charge, but it's like you've never been marooned on an island. And then here's the professor who actually has knowledge about the situation because he's a botanist. And uh, because he's like black and it's 1964, they just kind of ignore him. They're just like, oh, what, what you're saying is not, you know, we don't care about what you have to say. Okay. Okay, that, that answers that for me. And I don't have any other questions. So we'll start the fight. Tristan uh, did his pitch first. So he'll get the first minute to uh, uh, defend why his movie is better than Joe's. Before I forget, I want to address Bobby's question really quick. And like, why did I make it a slasher? And I think it's, the premise fits perfectly. Like it's contained location and a really short cast list. It's a perfect slasher premise. Like they're all stuck in you, the typical slasher, like, oh, a cabin in the woods. And this is like, oh, an island in the in the ocean. So you get the people that can't leave, they can't escape, but it's a short cast list, perfect for a horror slasher. And I'd like to see John Krasinski get out of the sort of like monster thriller genre of horror and get into and try a different subgenre of horror here. I, I don't like Lucas Hedges as a cast in Joe's. I think... Uh, he's 30 seconds. an okay actor, but I don't pick. I don't see him as Gilligan. Gilligan's like the buffoon kind of goofy character, and I don't see Lucas Hedges playing that. And I'm also not a fan of your ending. It's just like, oh, they see a boat, and maybe it helps them, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. And I think mine has a more definitive ending with the bit of a cliffhanger for a 15. horror movie, but you still get the ending of the movie. Like, it's still over. You know, you get the answer to the question, they escape, and yours doesn't answer any of the questions. It feels like I'd finish that movie and I'd be like, well, okay, I guess it's over, <laughs> you know, and mine just has an actual ending. So I'll get more into my, my defense on my two minutes, but I'll hand it off to Joe now, see what he has to say for his one minute. Okay. Joe. All right, you ready? Yep. All right, I think I partially kind of answered your question with answering Johnny's question, but one other thing too is, you know, horror movies always, like, Cabin in the Woods played with it a lot too of like horror movies have these like classical archetypes and I feel like Gilligan's Island uh, does as well you know just by watching the theme song they're not even like this is Steve they basically are like this is the skipper this is you know the millionaire this is the movie star like they have these classical archetypes so that's why I kind of went towards the horror with this and I feel like with Kyle end of with how I answered Johnny thirty question, seconds, I kind of answered why I went with what I went with. As far as my ending, I feel like I partially tried to tie it into the show. Is like they were constantly marooned on this island, but they would still have like visitors come to the island. So I kind of wanted to tie into that a little bit of like the ships coming, but you're kind of you know it's never like they land on shore and rescue them. So you're still partially wondering if the ships truly coming for them. So. You know, it's kind of like the choose-your-own-adventure type of ending. Like, do you think it came for them, or do you think they're left marooned on the island like in the show? Okay. All right, Tristan, two minutes whenever you're ready. Okay, so for my two minutes, I'm going to attack on your Jordan Peele choice a little bit. Uh, you kind of defended social commentary a little bit, but you didn't defend the, the racial side of it. And I think Jordan Peele, one of the things he seems to pride himself on a lot is forwarding black voices and forwarding black stars and you have two black actors and you would be sure but almost all of your cast is white people and i think jordan peele shines when he's able to take people black actors you didn't necessarily know before like uh the lead of get out and suddenly he's a household name suddenly he's a oscar nominee suddenly he's leading franchises and i think jordan peele could have been a good pick if you had like a prominently black cast instead of like two black actors in your movie 
So I think that kind of misses the premise of a Jordan Peele movie. I also uh, think that jo uh, John is a better choice because I think he showed in Quiet Place too. He worked with that deaf actress. He's a, ca a character that typically in a movie would be like dismissed and someone they wouldn't take seriously. And I think that's something similar to Gilligan's Island. Like you have these characters One that minute. you wouldn't necessarily take seriously. Like Gilligan's a fool, but he's key in figuring out who the killer is. People underestimate him and say stuff they wouldn't say around him because they think, oh, it's just Gilligan. He doesn't know what he's doing. And he's the one who puts it all together and figures out the killer at the end. So I think that's very faithful to John Krasinski's style as a director underestimated characters that kind of come through at the end and become the leads. And I think mine just sounds like a great direction for uh, Jackson's career. And I think yours feels like a bit of a step back for Peel. I think I'd like to see him do more creative, interesting stuff. 30 and seconds. stuff that forwards black artists and not a bunch of white people and then like two black people in the cast and that's it. I think mine just fits the director a bit more and is a better direction for his career. I don't think Jordan Peele's in a Gilligan's Island movie with a bunch of white people is what I want to see. So that's my argument for mine. I'll surrender the rest of my time over to Joe. All right. Who sucks? <laughs> that's what I was waiting for. <laughs> yeah, I was like, there you go. All right, Joe, whenever you're ready. Uh, as far as the uh, Jordan Peele defense, the one thing I would add is I feel like for my movie to work, you kind of need uh, the white people to outnumber the black people because if it's like five you know, black people and one white people, I feel like the dynamic in the movie doesn't necessarily work. And as far as unknown actress, I feel like Laura Harrier and her, you know, in the movies I've seen her in has proved that she uh, is a good actress and could lead a movie, but she's mostly played small roles. And I feel like she could be kind of like the Lakeith, what Lakeith Stanfield was in uh, Get Out or uh, what a number of the actors were in Us. I feel like she could be that for this movie. On as far as like John Krasinski, I just don't know if like a slasher movie that's a take on Gilligan's Island is like going to be a step forward for any director. I feel like it's kind of you know a standard type thing. I'm not going to say like oh this Gilligan's Island movie is going to push Jordan Peele's movie forward, but I don't know if there's a director out there that directing a remake of Gilligan's Island is going to push their career forward. One minute. So I wasn't exactly focused on that aspect. Um, not, yeah, I just don't know if, like, a John Krasinski take on Gilligan. Oh, and one thing I did want to add was as far as uh, Gilligan being the buffoon, I kind of didn't exactly want to go in that direction because I feel like it didn't fully uh, go along with my tone and my story, but I did want to have him kind of be a buffoon in the end where you realize he was the one that sabotaged uh, the boat and put him in that situation. So I feel like there is that aspect seconds. of Gilligan of being the buffoon there, and I will concede the rest of my... 22 seconds or whatever it is also Tristan right. sucks yeah, yeah, there you go. yeah all right well i'm making the final call johnny so i i think i know where i'm going but i could actually be like kind of persuaded one way or the other here so what do you got it's it's tough because i i feel like since both are horror movies both are by very good directors, so I trust them with his projects. Um, a lot of the kind of deciding factor for me, I felt like, would come down to cast. Unfortunately, Anton Yelchin uh, was tragically killed uh, years ago because I feel like he would have been a really, really good Gilligan in a, in a, a horror take on Gilligan's mm -hmm. Island. That's like who I kept picturing in a role. Um, I would have really loved like a rom-com type of Gilligan's Island uh, directed by Wes Anderson. I think that could have been a good direction, but both of you went horror. 
And I think what it comes down to for me is what's like the next step for these directors? Cause I like both casts. I don't necessarily love Lucas Hedges as the lead as far as what I know of Gilligan, but Joe did a good job arguing why he chose him and how it's a different character. So that kind of, you know, canceled that out for me. Um, so I think just as far as like next step for a director's career goes, I think Tristan made a good point that this would be a step back for Jordan Peele. And I think that this would be a fun step forward for John Krasinski to go more of a slasher movie rather than what we saw in A Quiet Place and A Quiet Place 2. So just as far as what I'm looking for with these directors, I think I'd rather see slasher movie by John Krasinski than Jordan Peele just kind of doing a movie that seems like a watered-down version of what we've seen from him. So I would go personally with Tristan's, but it is very close. Yeah, this one was very close. Um, And I do think that for... For a few different reasons, I'm going in, in the same direction. Um, I think that the the type of cast, like the the style of show and the cast that you have for Gilligan's Island does play itself very well, I think, to a slasher. That fit really well in my head, like when I was picturing a movie of like, you're going to kill off these very stereotypical kind of characters as you go throughout the movie. Um, I think that just kind of fit. Um, and again, yeah, I think that Jordan Peele directing... Gilligan's Island just it didn't quite work quite as well in my head as far as what I'd like to see him do and what I think he could do as a director for that type of movie so um I think I'm going Tristan as well and uh we're gonna tie it up at two well there we go I I do think um while both of you chose better directors I think an interesting horror take on this would have been like in Eli Roth style they yeah. go to an island. They think they own the island. Gilligan is more of this kind of cocky character, but then it's like this um, tribe of like cannibal type thing, and you get this really heavy, dark, uh, gore, <laughs> gory, uh, yeah. R-rated uh, horror movie. I think would have been an interesting like kind of uh, direction to go. It was tough because both of you went while both movies were different. It was similar yeah. in the end, like just in terms of tone and and style. Yeah. So I think like a more of a it's gory but fun type of Gilligan's Island with fun characters dying off would be would have been a little more uh I think would have maybe won the point over a little more but I I think both of you pitched very good horror movies that I would have wanted to see um so that being said Joe lost that point it's now tied to two what are we doing next uh I'm gonna go with another uh gamble as far as mine goes and I'm gonna go with the show I picked with Hogan's Heroes all right, I was waiting for us and to I'll get go here. first. All right, Hogan's Heroes, the film came out in 1976. It uh, got a 54% on Tomatoes. It was directed by Michael uh, Camino. Due to creative disagreements between the studio and director, the original NC-17 cut of the film was cut down to a PG-rated release. Some elements of the film were praised, such as the performances of Eddie Albert and Ryan O'Neill, but overall the film was heavily panned and had little success at the box office, mainly due to the weird editing of the movie. Um, so yeah, this was something that uh, uh, had traction a little bit. They wanted to go really dark uh, way, and then uh, it got edited down because the original show wasn't intended that way. So 
I'm interested to see what you guys did with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, so I'm interested. Joe said he's going first. Let's see what you have to say about Hogan's Heroes. All right, so uh, my director is uh, Drew Goddard, who has done well with, you know, ensemble casts, and he's, you know, somewhat fit more the tone I'm going to go with. And I'll, uh, before you make too many judgments, I guess I'll just read my pitch. Uh, for the role of Colonel Hogan, uh, I went with Chris Pine. Uh, for Corporal LeBeau, I went with uh, Guillaume Canet, who is in the movie Joy and Noel. For Corporal Newkirk, I got Riz Ahmed. I have uh, Denzel Whitaker, who is in Black Panther and Warrior, as Staff Sergeant uh, Kinchlow. For Technical Sergeant Carter, I have Will Poulter. Uh, and then I have for Sergeant Schultz, I have Daniel Bruhl, who is in Inglorious Bastards, and he's also a number of uh, MCU movies. And then for Colonel Clink, I have Thomas Crutchman, who is in A Taxi Driver, and then uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. And then I'm introducing a new character called Robert Clary, uh, who's going to be played by Logan Lerman. Uh, so my movie is a little bit slightly darker and more serious than the show. Uh, it's not a slapstick comedy, and I want to take it a little more seriously. So uh, for my story, Robert Clary is a wounded American soldier who is brought into the World War II who is brought yeah is brought into the World War II POW camp. There he meets Colonel Hogan and the crew. Hogan tells him it's their job to get him out, and as he points to the wall surrounding the camp, he says to get them to the other side. Clary feels he should be in the camp for what he did. And Hogan doesn't want to press the issue and lets it go. Hogan tells Clary that they've gotten a lot of lost souls out, but that getting out of the camp is never easy. The guards here are mean and nasty little devils. Hogan introduces Clary to his team, giving a rundown of their backgrounds and areas of expertise. Riz Ahmed's character asks Clary how he managed to get in the camp. Clary doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, Hogan presents Clary the plan that uses all of the team's various skills. Uh, Clary says he isn't worth it. He deserves to rot in the camp. Hogan asks him why, and eventually Clary breaks down. His squad was sent to ambush a platoon of German soldiers, but he was too scared. As they rushed into their death, he stayed behind and hid in a foxhole. The next morning, he woke up to a couple of Germans standing over the foxhole. He says they shot him and drug him to the POW camp. Hogan says that Clary still has time to make up for it, but he needs to get out and move on. That night, the Germans in charge of the camp dragged Clary away to interrogate him. They know the prisoners have been escaping the camp. They want to know how. Clink and Schultz torture him all throughout the night, but he won't budge. He refuses to be cowardly anymore. Eventually, they give up and throw him back away with the others. And throw him back with the others. Hogan tells Clary it's time to go, and they are busting him out at sunrise. One of the crew serves as a distraction as Hogan leads Clary to a tunnel. He tells, he tells Clary to crawl. Clary starts crawling and saying it's, it's dark. Hogan says just to keep crawling. Eventually, we hear him yell out, there is a light. I see a light at the end of the tunnel. Just then, the shot turns black and white and grainy. The camera pans, and we see a face mapped or deep-faked Rod Serling, the original host and creator of the Twilight Zone. He says Colonel Hogan leads a very special camp. You see, his camp isn't located on the war front. No, his camp is located in a very special place between heaven and hell, a place that helps lost souls move to the great beyond and out of the Twilight Zone. And that is the rule I hmm. use as I cross my movie over with another franchise. And that is with the Twilight Zone. Interesting. That is not what I was expecting from Hogan's Heroes, but I, I like it. Sorry, you I missed that, that last part. What was that? Basically, <laughs> you missed the entire twist of his pitch. Yeah, basically, uh, the POW camp is actually purgatory, and they're there to usher him, usher. Uh, people out it's of the twilight purgatory into yeah. like 
whatever the ap- whatever afterlife you want to say is, and it turns out that it's the Twilight Zone essentially. It's got my, it, got it's it, my got release. It. And who is your director? Uh, Drew Goddard. Okay, that's what I. Who's worked on shows like Buffy movie. and uh, other things and done like big ensemble type movies. All right, interesting pitch. Um, Tristan, what do you got for us? All right, so for my Hogan's Heroes, the rule that I use, I'll say, is I use a cast of stand-up comedians. I went a bit more faithful to the tone of the original show than I think Joe did. Uh, And my director choice was Bo Burdum. He's a stand-up comedian. He's had some great directorial work so far, and I think this could be a fun, very comedy-oriented work for him, but also with enough social commentary to make it something that would fit within Bo Burnham's world. Uh, My premise here is that a team of allied POWs during World War II who, who have been routinely breaking out high-risk prisoners under the nose of the Nazi guards must step up their game when a new warden begins to crack down on the prisoners and come closer and closer to discovering the truth of their heists. Uh, and that's just the basic premise to get through my cast here really quick. Uh, my Colonel Robert Hogan, I have him as a POW who's the leader of the team. He's been planning kind of small escapes for these high-risk prisoners, so they're not doing, like, big, huge escapes. They're like, oh, this one woman who found out her husband has cancer. We have to break her out so she can get back to America to see her husband. Like, very, very small breakouts you can hide under the radar. That kind of thing that you could you could see getting past the guards. Uh, and my Colonel Werner is uh, the leader of the POW camp. He's kind of a comedically unaware uh, leader of the camp who doesn't really take it, doesn't really like see what's going on, and he just kind of aloof a little bit. And I have him played by Larry David. I think that would be really fun. Obviously, he's Jewish, so it would be fun to see him play like a Nazi guard at a camp. And I think I could see him playing like this super out of touch guy who doesn't really know what's going on in this camp pretty well. Uh, the right-hand man of, of Klumper, who's always eager to prove himself as the best Nazi of all the Nazis, is played by John Mulaney, also Jewish. <laughs> I made a point to cast Jewish comedians as my Nazis as a, as a fun subversion, uh, similar to like Jojo Rabbit did, uh, where you cast people that Hitler typically would hate as the Nazis, as a, as a nice lampooning of, of the Nazis. And among the, the Hogan's team here is a scientist, uh, kind of an explosive expert of a team uh, who's played by Tiffany Haddish. I think that would be a fun version of the role a little bit for Tiffany Haddish. And uh, I have also a French conman who's sort of like the talking his way out of everything kind of character who's played by Paul F. Tompkins. Not a super well-known comedian, but he's had a lot of supporting roles in TV shows, so I think he'd fit well in the supporting role here. I know him most for Bojack Horseman, but he's been in a lot of live-action stuff like Community and things like that. Uh, and the uh, newest member of the Hogan's hero is kind of a fresh faced American soldier who comes into the story. It is our, a bit of our eyes and ears into it is played by Bo Burnham himself. And the new warden who comes in after the first act and is kind of the one who's cracking down on their plots is played by Sarah Silverman. So like I said, we beat Hogan's heroes. Uh, They're doing an escape where they're breaking out a prisoner, a cameo by Bill Hader, who's done Senate before, but isn't necessarily active as a stand-up comedian, so I think it will be better to have him as a, as a small role here. He escapes in the beginning sequence here. And you see the team kind of working in tandem. They're all kind of at their prime here. They're under the nose of the Nazis. They break out Bill Hader with virtually uh, no problem. So we're an opening sequence of kind of seeing the Hogan's heroes at their prime, pulling this off and doing what they do best. And then the next morning, we meet Larry David's character, who's just a completely out-of-touch leader of the prison. He's totally unaware of the escapees. And he brings in a new prisoner, played by Bo Burnham, like I said, who, after the first sequence, is kind of our eyes and ears, introducing all these characters to us. You know, he's the new guy, so he meets Hogan, he meets all these characters, and kind of learns their roles. 
in the story here. And like I said, John Mulaney is kind of uh, the sidekick to the uh, the lead guy here, or the lead Nazi here. Uh, so he's constantly wanting to impress him and show off, uh, despite the fact that the uh, the main character or the main Nazi, Dale Larry David, clearly does not care about this guy. Like <laughs> he's just like shrugging him off. I can see Larry David playing that really well. He's just like shrugging and not super into what John Mulaney's doing. John Mulaney's taking this Nazi stuff super seriously, and then Larry David's like, "Oh, you know, we're just guarding this prison." And I don't know. And so the plan, uh, they the Hogan's Heroes plans another escape for Bill Boredom's character, but. This time it goes wrong. An explosion goes very wrong, and the alarm stops sounding, and they all kind of guards all kind of charge out, and they capture Paul F. Tompkins' character. Uh, he's captured, and they're planning to execute him, and he's being kind of interrogated to say, "Oh, sell out your friends, sell out who's helping you with these escapes." And he says, "Oh, there are no escapes. I just it was an accident." He's lying for his team. He's defending his team despite all this Nazi torture. Uh, so meanwhile, the team decides they got to break out the little Frenchie and escape all together. Or they'll be caught and surely all killed by this new prison guard. Uh, so, like I said, yeah. Uh, before this second, after this second uh, attack where Paul Tompkins is captured, they bring in a new guard to uh, clean up the mess that Larry David left, and that's Sarah Silverman's character who comes in and is the one that kind of cracks down the rules and says, "Oh, these prisoners, what's going on, Larry David? You've got prisoners that are missing." And he says, "Oh no, we 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 have." Uh, Counts him and he says, "Oh, once you, you know." And then she says, "Oh, but you brought Bo Burnham's character in, and then it, you lost one. Like he, the numbers even out." And Larry David's like, "Oh, I don't know. He's kind of not in touch with reality at all." So she's cracking down on this a lot, and it becomes kind of like a heist breakout movie from from the second half on, where they're trying to break out Paul F. Tompkins' character. They're planning this heist together, and Bo Burnham is filling in the role here. Uh, he's been he worked as an explosions. Uh, he worked with explosives in the military. I had him as sort of like a D-Day uh, veteran who was captured later on in the war, and he talks about his work in the war. And he's not as good as Frenchie, but he can do his best, and he becomes kind of like the the next member of the team here. And they break him out, and they escape, and it's just a nice victory movie where the good guys win, the Nazis lose, and you kind of make a fool out of the Nazis. And I, like I said, I made a point to cast them all as Jewish actors, which would, I think would be a nice... Uh, fun subversion. I mentioned Jojo Rabbit as kind of an inspiration because I think that movie did a good job of making the Nazis out to be buffoons, but also like dangerous buffoons who are actual threats. And I think that's what I'm trying to go for here. Like these are dangerous people, but we're kind of lampooning them. But at the same time, like they capture Paul F. Tompkins and torture him. So there's a moment there where you're like, oh, I'm taking this a bit, a little bit more seriously. But the fact that it's filled with all these funny people and you're just lampooning the Nazis a bit is a nice balance of fun with also a bit of the serious stakes to it. And that's my pitch for Hogan's Heroes with stand-up comedians. All right. That was a long one. <laughs> well, I liked it, though. I, I'm into both. Um, Bobby, do you have any questions? This is one we're deciding on together. I mean, you both described it pretty well. I don't really have any particular questions other than, like, maybe – just like coupled casting choices and stuff like that, but that's nothing more that I need like a justification on other than just in your pitches. So uh, I don't know. Do you have anything specific, Johnny? Not really. I'll say Tristan missed a couple opportunities with his casting. I think Paul F. Tompkins doing his Werner Herzog voice being a Nazi guard would have been fun um, as far as what he was going for. And I think it was a missed opportunity not to cast Anthony Jesselnik as a Nazi. If you know his, his stand up and kind of how 
how he is and and how he looks too i think would have been uh would have been fun to be like the darker character but i i like both pitches so i'm interested to see you guys fight it out and joe's going first with yeah his minute. yeah bobby looks frozen yeah, no, whenever you're ready. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, you're good. Yep. I thought you were frozen, so I was waiting for you to unfreeze, so I'm good. Uh, all right, so I have a few uh, number of things against uh, Tristan's, mainly uh, with the casting. Like, I part of the reason I went a more serious route with Hogan's Heroes is I feel like part of, like, the comedy and the style and, like, the more comedic route of it, I don't know if it necessarily, like, holds up with the storyline. Uh, like part of it was they stayed in the prison camp because they knew they were more important to the war busting out like these big higher profile uh, prisoners where I feel like with yours it's like why are they staying in these camps just to bust out like these random 30 seconds no name people and I also feel like how high profile and or like how dangerous and how hard can it be to break out of the camp when uh, Larry David's running the camp basically not giving a shit like I feel like it definitely lessens the stakes and I feel like how is there any way that they could possibly be caught when Larry David might as well just, it sounds like might as well just open the gate and be like, eh, come and go as you please. I don't, I don't really know what's going on here. Uh, and I feel like it's like too comedic. There's no like, yeah, there's Nazis in the movie, but I feel like they're just so buffoonish that it's really, mm -hmm. there's like no teeth to it. And I feel like it's just not, there needs, there needs to be some level of drama. Okay. All right, Tristan, whenever you're ready. I like that mine keeps the tone of the original, and I think it's a good time to make fun of Nazis while still taking them a little bit seriously. You mentioned, like, oh, why are they staying here saving random no-name people? And, like, that's why they're staying here, so they can save random no-name people. Like, I think my theme of this movie, it's still comedic, but I want the, the core of it to be, like, individual people matter, like, small people matter. They're breaking out not big military guards who are, like, the shining star of the military. They're breaking out, like, a mom who wants to see her kid, but they're breaking out, like, small-time people who want to live a life and are stuck in this camp and they can't do it obviously and i think that is kind of what i wanted to go for like sure there's small individual people that's kind of the point and you mentioned uh the stakes and i think the stakes are fine like larry david is the beginning of the movie when they're kind of doing their own thing and and then of course sarah silverman comes in and that ups the stakes like you have this slacking kind of guarding larry david you have sarah silverman come in he's taking it very seriously and I think that that's what mine has that you're just, uh, that I think you tried to attack on, but I don't necessarily think it's a strong attack because I think all of those are intentional parts of the movie. Okay. All right, two minutes, Joe, whenever you're ready. Uh, all right, so as far as defending mine, one of the things I liked about mine is more like the allegory of everything, of like the Nazis in my movie are basically representations of uh, demons or like a devil-type uh, being so I kind of like that aspect of it and that's why I made them more serious and more uh, thing and I like to kind of go in the different route of it. it's like yeah it's a POW camp and they're breaking them out but it's like okay this POW camp it's not just like obviously your standard POW camp and I thought it was kind of an interesting mixing it with a franchise that you never would think to mix like oh I'm gonna mix Hogan's Heroes and like Twilight Zone but I think you know the way I pitched it and the way I put it together I think it works uh, really well and I feel like Twilight Zone's like a very popular uh, franchise and uh, even if you don't happen to know what Twilight Zone is I feel like the way I pitched it and everything people are still able to understand what's going on and I feel like that makes it uh, different and interesting where I feel like yours is just like a goofball comedy that I don't really know if anyone 
is going to ultimately care about uh, just because and also to attack your director choice like Bo Burnham is very much into like you know timely movies and having things to say and I you know he was very like deep into with eighth grade making sure it was like timely and making sure it was accurate and I just feel like he, he's not really going to be into making a Hogan's Heroes like goofball comedy uh, World War Two movie that's not exactly like timely today and isn't you know relevant and I just feel like that's not exactly the his type of movie that he would ever make and I have no idea how much time's left but Bobby went away so it's got to be close to time <laughs> uh what are we doing for Bobby now are we waiting or should I uh just start going oh he's back oh there he is Bobby did you hear what I said at all oh he's frozen Bobby, did you hear me at all? Come on. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear yeah. you. Gonna go out on a limb and assume he did not hear anything I said. <laughs> I think we uh I think he heard it all he needs to know. Um I haven't really talked to Bobby about this one. Tristan um, so still I'm has two gonna... minutes. Yeah, I still have my I two can, minutes. I can, but... I can time you if you like trust me to time. No, you. I got a timer. Right. Let me let me pull it up. All right, ready? I'll start when you start talking, Tristan. All right, I want to address uh, Joe's choice of a Twilight Zone as his crossover franchise. I think he doesn't use it well or use it enough. I think the Twilight Zone, what made it so unique is that it was using sci-fi to comment on real-world issues. It wasn't like, oh, here's Nazis in a camp. It was like you're using a high sci-fi concept to talk about real-world issues, and I think yours is too grounded. Yours, talk, yours is very much about the camp about the prisoners about the war and then throwing in the twilight zone thing at the end i don't think it fits very well and i think what rod sterling loved to do in the twilight zone is he had this past of like oh i'm gonna make sci-fi stuff and then they're gonna let me do what i want to do and i think yours doesn't use the sci-fi at all really it's like at the suddenly at the last second of the twilight zone movie and i don't think that fits very well i think you want to lean into that sci-fi stuff for the twilight zone so i think yours just kind of totally misses the bot misses the misses the dot i don't want a twilight zone episode is and what makes twilight zone so unique so i think that was a it could have been a good choice but you didn't use it well at all in your pitch here and i i think you mentioned bo burnham is a bad choice but i think this is pretty timely like racism is very prominent in our society and i think he could use it as a way to comment on racism in our society today and he i also mentioned like it talks about the importance of the individual people about these small group going against the big large massive conglomerate of nazis and i think that's something that bo burnham what attached to too is like a modern timely issue of a small group of people standing up. He saw inside, he was very uh, distraught about the current situation of the world and wanting people to stand up and change it. So I think this is something he could lead into as seconds. the small group of people who are standing up facing against the Nazis. And even though it's comedic, even though it's like a slapstick comedy, I mentioned Jojo Rabbit on purpose because that is a, it is a comedy, but it doesn't lose like the threat of the Nazis by the end. You're able to still take them seriously by the end and you're reminded of like, how seriously these Nazis are. And I think my Paul F. Tompkins torture scene and like this, Sarah, uh, the new Sarah Silverman character kind of helps you take the Nazis seriously, Five, my movie. Four, and Joe, three. you suck. Uh, can I just quickly say like very few episodes of Twilight Zone had were like sci-fi? That's not true. That's, that's, not true that's very um, true. I've seen every episode of Twilight Zone multiple times. Very few of them that were strictly sci-fi. Yours is zero sci-fi, though. Like, yeah, but, no sci-fi. like, there were a number of episodes that were zero sci-fi. Like, m- a couple. Most there, of there, the episodes were... I... This... 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I think a lot of Twilight Zone, like you have the casino episode and you have a lot of stuff that's like, it's revealed at the end that it's purgatory or it's revealed at the end that like something kind of crazy is going on. Yes, I, I, I think Joe's fits into that fine. I, I get where he's going with it. Um, while maybe it's not the strongest use of uh, crossing over, I do understand what he's uh, going for. So that being said, Bobby back in. Um, Bobby, we're deciding on this together, but I think we're split. Um, but what would you choose based on what you've heard? He froze again. I think he said Tristan. Uh, I think so. All right. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yep. All right. It was very close for me. I was leaning a little bit towards Joe. I found... All right. Well, I heard Bobby say but, he's leaning towards... Oh. Yeah, towards but. Joe. But but it's very close. So. Hmm. All right, we'll go. We'll go at this this way because Bobby's uh, locking out or whatever. So I don't know. It's tough because I, I I'm kind of split because Tristan I think missed some opportunities with his. I think with Bo Burnham as a director, um, even going more towards like a Jojo Rabbit. I don't know if first of all that Bo Burnham has shown the um, ability as a director to compete with like a Taika Waititi level uh, film. I think they're kind of in two different classes, but I do love eighth grade, but that's not something that I picture as like a comedy. Uh, If Bo Burnham was directing a more serious version of Tristan's movie, I think that would have made it stronger. So What's tough is I I think both movies sound good. I like Joe's use of Twilight Zone. I do think that's a good pitch. Um, But at the end of the day, for me, and I'm deciding right now because it's like 51-49. Personally, I think I'd agree with Bobby and go with Joe based solely on the fact that I, I think he stuck to a tone that really worked. And I think Tristan's tone was a little too uh, much over the place, like kind of all over the place for me. The Larry David thing I think is kind of funny, but I think if you have the Larry David type role and then also have like some serious torture scene, I think that movie is a little too much um one way or the other and i think joe stays at least more consistent tone wise so i think that's like the very basic uh and very base uh deciding factor but it was very close that was i was going back and forth as i was talking and i think at the end of the day i agree with bobby because he already chose joe i think i'm gonna go that way as well um and and go with joe but tristan did pitch a good movie i just think he missed a couple opportunities to make his movie a little darker than it could have been. While, you know, you wanted to go with more of the tone of the original, a lot of the original, the comedy came from the kind of heroes of the show interacting, and there was not much comedy coming out of the Nazi-type characters. I think Tristan went kind of the opposite direction with that. So so I, do, I, I think Joe just pitched uh, 
just a slightly stronger uh, movie. So that makes it three to two and Tristan lost. So he's going to have to win this one back to push it to game seven. I, um, I will say I've spent most of my thought the, all, for all of these pitches trying to defend like Twilight Zone because basically I thought the main attack would be like, oh, it's not like that popular. People would be confused and that wasn't brought up at all. And I'm almost disappointed. No, I spent, I, 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 I spent so I much like Twilight Zone, time. I think Twilight Zone, you can do something new yeah. with it. Yeah. The problem is like the new show of Twilight Zone was kind of a failure. Yeah, I didn't even it watch it, and I'm good. a massive fan of, like, the original series, and I didn't even watch, like, the just because I heard people be like, it's not that great, so I'm just like, eh. Yeah, same. Yeah, I was, I love Jordan Peele, and I watched the new season, and I was like, this is a big disappointment, but I think you're stuck closer to what I picture, like, the original Twilight Zone. I yeah. think that's what kind of excited me about your your yeah. twist at the end, is that it felt more like a old-school Twilight Zone than what they're doing nowadays yeah. with it, and yeah. I think that... uh that helped you yeah so all right well we're at uh over two hours now so we got to go to the next movie tristan what are we what are we going next you got either mantis or um, let's let's just go with mantis i'm going with mantis i think we have the same two trying to figure out what rules he has left because i think we have the same no no, i haven't used cast of comics and he has used rom-com when i haven't so yeah, this is one coming up, though, that I don't think either of us have used. Or not. Oh, I think you might have used it, actually, because my rule here is I have a cast of all women. I'm gonna, I'll just oh, go yeah. first on this. All right. Uh, well, Mantis uh, was released in 2009. It got a 4% on Rotten Tomatoes. The director were the Brothers Strauss. Um, trying to capitalize on the success of a superhero, of superhero movies, Iron Man and the Dark Knight in 2008, Dow Studios spent their last remaining budget on Mantis in 2009, only to see the, the film bomb, causing the studio to declare bankruptcy and permanently shut down. R.I.P. Dow Studios. All because of Mantis, you know? I mean, it would have been... Mantis, <laughs> Mantis killed Dow. All right, I'll get to my pitch now. Like I said, my rule is all women. And uh, my lead and my director is Michaela Cole. She just came off of a bunch of Emmy nominations from May Destroy You, which was a great, great HBO show that was able to bring in social commentary. And I think she was she's really a promising director, and I can't wait to see what she does next. And this is going to be what she does next. Uh, she's our lead character. I have a couple other uh, cast members in here, but I'll get into that in the pitch. Uh, during an unprovoked traffic stop, Myla Hawkins, who is played by Michaela Cole, the lead, uh, and her sister, Sarah Hawkins, are harassed and shot by a police officer, played by Elizabeth Moss. Uh, Sarah, the sister, dies, and Mila is put into a coma. Uh, she awakens to find out that the cop who killed her sister got away with it with no consequences, and was even defended by the police chief and the mayor and a bunch of people who were in powerful positions. So she makes it her vow to get revenge for her sister but of course she's in a coma so she's having this very 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 slow physical recovery it's not it's it's not going to her timeline you know she wants to get out and do this now and she can't do it and it's very frustrating for her but during her recovery she's approached by uh joan stonebeck who is a character from the original that i have played uh in here as sort of a stand-in for that character but i have her played uh as sort of a powerful tech influencer played by angela bassett uh, so my Stonebreaker kind of asks Mila to if she truly wants revenge for her sister, and of course she says yes, and she offers her an experimental technology called the Mantis Program. It's a full-body 
a full body exoskeleton that allows her to not only walk again, but give her extra strength and stronger defense. So now Mila, along with the guidance of Stonebreaker, kind of takes revenge on the system that wronged her. I'm going for sort of a promising young woman feel, but rather than taking on like sexism and rape culture, it takes on systemic racism, police brutality. And I think that's something that our director can pull off pretty well. So we see Mila's kind of vengeance plan start to decay her relationships. Uh, even if she gets, even though she's getting kind of this newfound confidence, the more she does it, her relationship with her family and her friends are kind of decaying because of because of it. So we have that kind of complexity that I think could be pulled off really well by Michaela Cole as a director and an actress. And you also have Stonebreaker who has her own motivations. Uh, she wants to make the current mayor look bad so that she can run for mayor herself. And she says, oh, if I increase police activity and we increase like this outcry against police, maybe it'll make the mayor look bad so that I can have my run for office. So she had this like kind of a bit of a complex political uh, element there. And uh, I think that is kind of what I was going for. Like she's getting this revenge on the cops. Like we have this similar to Promising a Woman. She's like hunting them down in these situations. They wouldn't necessarily be suspicious of her in like, and I think Michaela Cole in that show, she showed that she can play like the meek and kind of, easygoing kind of person then she can also play like the real person like the one who's traumatized and the one who's troubled and i think that she can be the person who the cops underestimate and they like if she goes out to a and gets pulled over in some traffic stop is what she's trying to do she likes to get purposefully pulled over and then if the cop shows any sign of like racism or prejudice or any sort of abusive power she takes him out with her mantis uh abilities so you get that kind of like in promising a woman she's doing things that sure might be like morally justifiable in uh, in a way but are also a little bit morally complex so you're like wow she's really going far with this and taking her revenge on people so that a bit of a moral complexity because the original mantis show was supposed to be about that it was supposed to be about black uh people being empowered and kind of taking the system into their own hands and the studio reshoots kind of after the pilot turned it into the sci-fi ridiculousness so i wanted to go back to the faithfulness of what the original show was trying to do so i made it a racial commentary with some some action with the character, but a little bit more of a promising woman kind of style of drama. And I think Michaela Cole is a great director to pull that off and a great lead. So that's my cat, my pitch for Mantis. All right. Interesting. Joe, what do you got for us? All right. I want in a little bit different of a direction. My director is uh, Gina Prince Bythewood. She, uh, I will say uh, the rule I use is I made this a rom-com. Uh, she directed uh, The Old Guard, which is a Netflix movie that got 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, and she also directed uh, Love and Basketball, which is like a romance kind of comedy movie from the 90s that also was highly regarded 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. So she kind of has done kind of a- these action-y kind of movies as well as this romance kind of thing, which I'm going for. So my Dr. Miles Hawkins is going to be played by Sterling K. Brown, who's in This Is Us, Hotel Artemis, and then he was the uncle in Black Panther. I have the role of Leora Maxwell, who's going to be played by Zoe Saldana. And then I also have the role of Joan Stonebreak, who is going to be played by uh, Aquafina, who I feel like is a good like side character in a rom-com. So Dr. Miles Hawkins is a single man who works long nights in a cybernetics lab for Box Industries, along with his assistant, Joan Stonebreak. One night, Miles and Joan's lab is raided by a hit squad led by the notorious assassin known only as Ladybug. One of them draws a gun. Miles, cracking a joke about the situation, points his experimental laser gun at them. Miles' uh, gun doesn't work, and Miles is shot and left for, for dead. Joan, who was hidden away, calls 911. Months later, Miles is in the hospital and told he will never walk again. 
Miles notices a new woman, Leora Maxwell, in the office. Jones says he should go talk to her, but he feels she wouldn't be interested in a guy in a wheelchair, and Joan disagrees. Since Miles and Leora work closely with each other, they flirt back and forth, but Miles never pursues it. Miles begins using his technology to work on the suit so he can walk. The suit works and, uh, and better than expected. He can run faster than an Olympic sprinter. He can jump 20 feet in the air. When he extends the suit to his arms and torso, he is super strong. Uh, he realizes uh, he can go after Ladybug and the hit, squ hit Squad. With his newfound confidence, Miles asks Leora out, and she says yes. She is curi curious about his ability to walk, and he says the doctors call it nothing short of a miracle. Miles soon has to start balancing his dating life with his life as the hero known as Mantis. There is a scene where Leora tries to get Miles to invite her into his apartment, but he refuses because he is hiding that he is still technically paralyzed. After a fight between Mantis and Ladybug, we see her go back to her hideout, where it is revealed that she is in fact Leora. We see her hiding the fact that she knows she paralyzed Miles. Miles is hiding his super identity from Laura, and of course, Miles is getting advice from Aquafina's character through all of this. The movie ends with a final fight where both of their masks are removed and all of the secrets are revealed. Leora realizes Mantis's weakness and destroys his suit, leaving him paralyzed. However, because she loves him, she can't bring him, herself to kill him, which allows Miles to grab his gun and incapacitate Ladybug. Ladybug is ultimately captured, and the Mantis lives to fight another day. And that's my pitch. All right, Bobby, you have any questions? No, my internet's going to keep going in and out, so I got to keep it pretty short. But uh... there it is. All right, that was short. I said it. That was short. Should have been shorter. Short and sweet. Yeah, should have fucking just asked it. Um, I don't know. I don't have any questions really. So I'm interested to see what you guys have to do to fight it out. Do you want me to do the time still and just put it in the chat? I can do it. I, I can't see the chat, so don't do it that way. All right, Johnny will do it. All right, so uh, I think Tristan goes first. Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, yeah, Michaela Cole, I think it's a great director choice. She directed and wrote every episode of May Destroy You, and that was like a huge critical hit. And I think like we sometimes knock directors who haven't done movies before, but I think some of the best movies out there are like first-time directors, like Jordan Peele did Get Out. And if you pitch the guy from uh, a show, some sketch show doing a horror movie, you'd be like, that's terrible. And I think mine has a director who's really, really prominent on TV who gets her chance to do a movie. So I think that's a really great director choice. And I think bringing in the racial elements of the original is really significant too because the original show was attempting to do that and then the studio kind of came in and said, oh no, we can't do that racial stuff. We can't be that political, you know? So I think this is a chance for them to do the mantis they wanted to originally have, like a racial commentary element. And I think Joe's misses that mark a lot. And then my lean into that and the promising woman comparison I think is really apt because that was a great movie right. that was able to bring in social commentary uh, without being super, super overbearing and still entertaining. That was my one. Uh, I timed it out, you know? There, there we go. I liked it. All right, Joe. I'll start when you start. All right. The thing I like about mine the most is that I feel like it's a storyline we haven't really seen on the screen before of like this whole you know hero and villain uh love dynamic that i feel like it'd be very interesting you tie that you put aquafina she's super uh popular right now especially for a rom-com i think she could definitely add a uh, level of comedy to this plot uh 
you know, I definitely think it's something that people would be interested in seeing. I feel like uh, Tristan's just for a very limited audience. I don't know what the big reach for that. I feel like a superhero rom-com movie could be, you know, have very massive wide appeal uh, that people would be very interested in seeing. I feel like, uh, you know, my director has shown she can bridge both worlds of like a romance comedy as well as an action movie. So I feel like both aspects of my movie could be developed well. And that's all. I'll concede in my other 10 seconds or whatever. You have to at least say Tristan sucks. Tristan fucking sucks a whole lot. Sucks way more than anyone other everyone else here. There you go. All right, perfect time. Um, <laughs> all right, so Tristan, what is your two-minute uh, rebuttal to Tristan sucks more than anyone else? I mean, I think my movie is really good. You're, sound, you're like, sure, it has a mass appeal or something, but, like, we've seen so many superhero movies, and I want to get a different movie. I mean... We, I want to get like a revenge thriller where we see black characters empowered who are able to take on the revenge against these corrupt systems, but also at the same time not getting rid of the complexity of that situation and, and leaning into the fact that like what this woman is doing is, is kind of questionable, similar to Promising a Woman. Like, of course, you set up against sexual assault and violence, but you start to question her motivations and you start to question her actions by the end. And I want that to be in this movie too. I think you have the lead of Michaela Cole, who's a fantastic actress and i love to see her take on this direction I, I really like my cast too i think you have a i didn't uh mention that my police chief is selma hayek and my mayor is jennifer Connolly. so i wanted to get kind of a a strong range of women in here and not necessarily make the barriers literally black and white like our police chief is selma hayek there's a little bit of a complexity there so i wanted to get in to that with mine and I think that mine leans into the original a little with that kind of a premise, but it also kind of changes it up. It doesn't go to the sci-fi ridiculous dumbness of the original movie. And I think Joe's does. Joe's feels like a dumb kind of, oh, it's a superhero love story. And it's like, okay, I guess. And there's like a bunch of, a lot of action. And I don't know. It just feels like something that I would watch and forget about. And I think this feels like a really promising feature debut for a director that would be something that puts her on the huge map. And it's something that would even get like a lot of Oscar buzz maybe, you know, like I think this could be a, a genuinely really good movie. And Joe sounds like, I don't know, a fun rap or something, but mine sounds like an actual good movie. So I went for a good movie. Joe went for like a superhero romance that might get a lot of ticket sales, but would be something that would be acclaimed. And I think mine would be acclaimed. And that's all I got for my two minutes. All right. You got five seconds. Joe sucks. There you go. That's what I was waiting for. All right. So Joe, you get two minutes on the clock. Your time starts when you talk. All right. So one of the things I've seen, like I, you know, I'm apparently a 14 year old girl that scrolls through TikTok occasionally. And one of the things I've seen uh, on there for a number of creators is, you know, spe specifically black creators is like wanting a movie that like has black people that can just, this is a movie that has black people. It doesn't necessarily have to, not that like the movies that touch on race and deal with police brutality on other political themes aren't important and don't have their place. But part of it is just, why can't we just have a movie that has, you know, black people and stars, black people and can be about whatever. And so my movie fulfills that gap it you know it's different it's not it doesn't have to be a fully politicized movie it can be a popular wide spanning audience or wide like reaching movie that can tell its own story and doesn't necessarily have to have politics in it like something like a crazy rich agents which you know stars all minorities for the most part you know and it's super popular and it's super 
well regarded and it doesn't necessarily have to have political themes and all of these other uh things and it, it can just stand on its own and be its own thing and also uh tristan's just like he says it's like promising young woman but different so and tristan sucks. Can see. Tristan yeah, there sucks. you go <laughs> and there you go all right joe gave up his last 45 seconds bobby um I'm the deciding factor on this one, but do you have a uh, a pick here? I am. Maybe just type it in the you chat. You are out. <laughs> All right, I'll say it here. If you. Oh no! Right, yeah, just type it in the chat because I don't know what he's. Yeah, you're fucking done. <laughs> All right, here's my thing with this. Joe's movie sounds like Thunder Thighs or whatever the fucking Melissa McCarthy movie that just came out is, and I'm not into <laughs> it. Tristan's movie sounds like something that I would see. As pissed that I am that this is going to fucking round seven when we have been trying to shorten our episodes, I'm going to I'm go not gonna Tristan lie. here. I was like this close after just after our pitches before we fight, just saying, give Tristan the point, let's go <laughs> round seven, because I'm not going to win this. Yeah, Joe's didn't sound very good. It sounds like the Melissa McCarthy, Octavia Spencer, Thunderthighs movie, and I'm not into it. Uh, Tristan sounds good and something that I would want to see. I don't care if it has mass appeal. I don't give a shit about Yeah, I didn't really have office. a whole lot of arguments about it because his sounded yeah, like really genuinely really say. good. <laughs> yeah, his is like, well, what if I take the, like the original idea of it and kind of just yeah, uh, go off it? So. Well, whatever. We're going to uh, Game 7, and that brings us to Quantum Leap. Time Jump. I'll go first, too. Came out in 2000. Joe will go first. Um, Quantum Leap Time Jump came out in 2000. Got a 17% of Rotten Tomatoes. The director, RIP, is uh, Richard Donner, who recently passed. All right, and this is the little description I have from Wikipedia. A passion project of legendary director Richard Donner, Quantum Leap Time Jump, bombed in large part due to the film star Christian Slater's three-month prison stint, delaying the uh, delaying production in 1999. With only half of his scenes filmed, the producers decided to edit a full film together and release it with almost no promotion. So that kind of hurts your movie when your lead star uh, is only <laughs> there for half of the filming and then you decide to release it anyway. So I'm interested to see what you guys do with a uh, full, a full uh, actual timeline of filming movies. Right. And Joe said he's going first, so I'm going to start the clock whenever you start talking. All right. Uh, so uh, I'll just start with this. The rule I use is uh, one must have a cast comprised completely of stand-up comics. Uh, my director and star is going to be chris rock uh he has he's directed a few movies he hasn't directed a movie in a while and i feel like this could be a movie uh for him to come back uh the role of admiral al calavici is going to be played by bill burr and then the role of uh sam's uh brother uh is going to be uh tom beckett is going to be played by gerard carmichael so uh for my pitch, I have the original series was so comedic, dramatic, and emotional, and I want the tone of my com my tone of my movie to basically be a comedy with heart. Uh, so I said, in the not too distant future, uh, Sam Beckett is a physicist working on time travel. Over time, progress stops and funding stalls. Uh, however, Sam nearly drowns at the beach and is saved by a stranger. He is reminded of his own brother's death at an early age and decides to go back in time and save him, even though the machine isn't properly tested. 
Beckett takes along his communicator, which allows him to talk with his friend, Admiral Al Calavici. Uh, Sam awakens... Oh, you're way past a minute, but that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, Sam awakens to find (laughs) out he is in the body of his younger self. It is the summer of 1990, before his sophomore year of college. His brother Tom is entering his senior year. It's Wednesday night, and Sam knows that by Sunday evening, his brother will die after being hit by a car walking across the street. Sam does everything in his power to keep his brother from where he died on Sunday. That includes a lot of college-type hijinks of drinking and partying, which is kind of the bulk of my movie, is the brothers hanging out in their college days. Uh, Sam is maybe enjoying his time a little too much and is constantly being berated by Al, who's trying to make sure he stays on track and focused on saving his brother. There are emotional moments of Sam interacting with his brother for the first time in 30 years. We get to Sunday evening and everything evening and as much as sam tries to keep tom from the spot where he died the universe keeps intervening and pulling him back towards it they're hanging out on the sidewalk when tom sees a young father struggling with his child stroller stuck in a storm grate he rushes over to help but as sam tries to help he buckles over and doesn't feel well he starts coughing and spitting up water that's when al pops in and intervenes apparently the reason tom was hit by the car is he was saving someone else something sam never knew and the child in the stroller turns out to be the one that ultimately saves Sam from drowning in the beginning of the movie. So Sam is left with the choice of saving his brother, but knowing three people will die, or letting his brother die so three can live. Sam ultimately decides that his brother has to die, but he is glad he got to spend those last few days with him, giving the movie a bittersweet ending. The movie flashes, uh, and Sam disappears, and if you're a fan of the original Quantum Leap, you'll know he is leaping into another body, leaving the movie open for a sequel. And the show is ultimately about choice and helping people make the right choice. And I think for a story that's one movie and not a series of episodes, I wanted the story to be about the main character's choice and not them getting someone else to make a choice. And that's my pitch. Joe, your pitch was over four minutes. That sucks for you, I guess. (laughs) I don't know why I was timing it, but Tristan, I'm going to time you. What's your pitch? Oh, no. Well, for my rule, if you can keep track, one is a rom-com. So my quantum leap is a rom-com. Uh, Joe mentioned comedy with heart. What's more of a comedy with heart than a literal rom-com? Uh, my Sam Beckett is Chris Hemsworth. And my Nina, who's his love interest throughout the movie, is Alison Brie. And my director is Max Barbacow. We've used him a lot, but I think he's able to balance, when Palm Springs, he's able to balance sci-fi and romance pretty well. So I brought him into this, which I think he could do a similar thing here. So I meet an experienced Sam Beckett, who I mentioned played by Chris Hemsworth, and he's running his Quantum Leap game for years now. Uh, and... Joe mentioned he kind of like leaps between different bodies and tries to fix like historical uh, flaws within their lives. And uh, so we see him doing that uh, here. We see that he's at his peak of his game though. So like he's at, he's able to fix these problems in like seconds. You know, like he's racing his, he's racing L, the, the uh, AI that he works with in this version of the movie. And he's saying, okay, time me. And he runs and he does, he comes into someone's body and he, if you have a scene here where he goes up to like, He's in some, like, teenager's body, the girl he likes, and he says, oh, I love you, and that's all he has to do. And he, he's, like, all, instead of taking, like, 40 minutes to fix the problems, he's such an expert that he can do it in, like, seconds. But the fact that he's so good at his craft and he's kind of unfulfilled, he's kind of lonely, he doesn't really have anybody to connect with, he's just doing his quantum leap stuff and kind of not really having someone in his life. That is until uh, he wakes up in the 1500s, way back in the past, and he's like, oh, another quantum leap, another chance uh, to fix the history, but then he has an encounter with Alison Bree's Nina. Uh, she seems somehow familiar with him, but he says, oh, that's impossible. Nobody could recognize me, let alone, like, know who I am, but they have this sort of meet cute encounter where they have this interaction 
really quickly and she seems to know who he is but he's not sure who she is and he kind of just leaves and warps another body but then he gets in the 1990s he's in another body and he has another encounter with nina who seems like she hasn't aged a day and yet she has no idea who he is at all she's never seen him before she's very confused of who this guy is what he's talking about he says oh i saw you in the 100 she says oh uh it's impossible you know she's very confused by that and he eventually realizes he's fallen in love with a time traveler someone who's able to of course travel throughout time so that's why she her aging isn't necessarily consistent and i wanted to lean into like sort of a 50 first dates but the dates are all out of order like the, the for sam beckett we're in Sam Beckett's chronological order, but then necessarily Nina's chronological order. So he's meeting his third date with her might be like his 20th date in there in her eyes. So you have this sort of interesting relationship that I have between the two of them where she's sometimes ahead of him on the relationship, sometimes behind him on the relationship. So that could be a really fun rom-com dynamic to add to the mix of the rom-com. But you do follow that typical rom-com format where they meet cute at the beginning. They kind of start to connect. They start to hang out. You know, she's, he realizes, like, oh, she's known me so well that she can recognize me even in different bodies. So uh, there's that element to it. And it kind of grows over the course of the movie, and they have a falling out, and then a coming back together, and they kind of unite together. She's a time traveler. He has this quantum leap uh, going on. So they work together in the finale to sort of fix the history of some of a character, and you have this coming together of the two romantic leads in a classic rom-com format, I think. That fits pretty well, and you have Max Barbaco, who I think can balance the sci-fi and the rom-com pretty well. All right. Okay. Just any pitches, three minutes and 30 seconds. You beat Joe. I'm better. Mm. I don't know about that. All right. Well, Bobby, uh, you're breaking up a little, but do you have any questions? Uh, nope. I understand them both. I'm leaning a certain direction, but it's very close. All right, my question is this for both of you. How dare you, how dare you not do Quantum Leap and bring back a cameo from Scott Bakula, the great Scott Bakula? That's what I need all of your time. He's still uh, on TV. All of your mm -hmm. time should be defending right, I can your go that right now. not to bring back Scott Bakula. I can do that right now. I, I went first, right? All right, so uh, talk about Scott Bakula for one minute. I can do that. Uh, so basically, Scott Bakula is great. He's amazing. You can currently actively go watch him on TV, but I felt a better use of this rule was one last final great villain performance from Alan Rickman. I thought, uh, I felt like, what? yeah, and oh, that, that's yeah, how I yeah, used the rule. Yeah. That's how I felt was a better the use rule. of that rule. Uh, but to actually, yeah, but he's not Scott Bakula. But to actually attack uh, Tristan's uh, thing, if I get an actual full minute for that, if the, my last rambling dug in, uh, one of the things I wanted to keep with uh, Quantum Leap was kind of that decision of choice and like helping other people. And I feel like, well, I kind of changed that and made it the main character's choice and kind of made it, you know, revolve around the main character. Uh, I feel like Tristan's like, yeah, he leaps into bodies, but I just, I just don't really know how this, like, as far as like being Quantum Leap goes, it doesn't really like fit for me and what like quantum leap truly is and kind of the story and everything with quantum leap is just like uh he's bouncing around bodies and then i also 30 seconds uh as far as like meeting up with her and them always finding each other like i don't know like why necessarily she's jumping around either and like just the mathematical ability of them meeting twice let alone like 20 30 40 times 
like I would be confused about that the whole movie, and I feel like it would constantly take me out every time they run into each other. Of like, how of all of time and space and all of the billions of people in the world, like the fact that these people keep running into each other, I'd be like, this movie's dumb. But and no Tristan Scott sucks. Bakula. All right, Tristan, talk about Scott Bakula for a minute. Look, the reason I didn't use Scott Bakula is because I thought it would be fun <laughs> to turn this into a rom com, and I think the rom com is a good choice here in. Joe mentioned, like, oh, this isn't what uh, Quantum Leap is. And it's like, oh, he wanted to lean into the choice. And I think the choice is a huge part of this. Like, he's choosing to leave behind his routine of helping people to uh, go after this woman and to follow his romantic interests and to for once make a choice for himself rather than for these strangers that he's interacting with. And I think that is what I was trying to go for for my, in terms of a choice aspect of it. And I think the fact that he's fixing his own life rather than fixing somebody else's life is an interesting choice for a movie version of Quantum Leap. You want to up that up the stakes a bit on that. And you mentioned like, oh, how do they keep it interacting in, in in all of this? And I think the fact that she's a time traveler is why. Like they have a chance encounter once and the and because she can travel through time willingly, freely, she's able to uh just track him. And like they have this chance encounter once, sure, but then she knows see. who he is and she's able to kind of re encounter mm-hmm. him again. So that's my argument for that. And... All right. not, not enough Scott Bakula talk. Um, all right, Joe, you get two minutes to talk about Scott Bakula. All right. Ready to go. Scott, NCIS Los Angeles. It's a show that old people watch. Uh, but also, you know, Necessary Same. Roughness. If you haven't seen it, watch that. Also, uh, fuck other people, help yourself. That's the message of Tristan's movie. Oh, I didn't hit start. Uh, I, I only really started talking. Yeah, fuck other people, help yourself. That's the message of Tristan's quantum <laughs> Um, Scott Baker is not dead. Yeah, <laughs> he was in an episode of "It's Always Sunny." He sang a song. All it's right. my Can favorite get, song. Let's, all right, let's get to let's start the clock at a normal thing and let Joe. No, you're on twenty three seconds. Joe, you're yeah. losing time. I, I've been conceding time. I probably don't need the full minute. You're losing <laughs> time. But anyway, so. With my movie, I think it could be a fun dynamic of seeing Chris Rock, and I also think mine could have like funny moments of you have Chris Rock looking like forty-year-old Chris Rock needing to borrow like Gerard Carmichael's uh, ID so he can sneak into bars because people like look at him and don't see him as a twenty-one-year-old, and you can have like a lot of the hijinks, a little bit of those uh, co- college movies, but also I think for the most part, it's about like the relationship between these two brothers and. Uh, the brother kind of in as an adult truly meeting who his brother was for the first time because he was like a young dumb kid the last time he saw his brother so he didn't really get to fully see who his brother was and i think i like the dynamic more of like the classic trolley problem of do i save my brother or do i like let my brother die but then in turn me the like this little kid and this dad get to live and i feel like that's way more interesting of a movie than just like Fuck other people. I'm going to go fall in love with this one girl and hop around time and use these other people's bodies. Which was a big problem people had with Wonder Woman 1984 of he's co-opting these people's, this co-opting this guy's body. That she raped a guy? Yeah, that's basically Tristan's movie, but he's doing it with a bunch of different people throughout time. And that's, and uh, Tristan sucks. All right, cool. Tristan, uh, Joe wasted 12 seconds of not talking about uh, Scott Bakula. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see what you have to say about him in your two minutes. <laughs> I started the timer. You better fucking talk. I think That's it's not how that works. <laughs> Ten seconds. Oh, God, my mic was muted. Oh, no. <laughs> well, Joe's movie sucks. 
uh, my movie doesn't suck. Uh, so for my movie, I leaned into the rom-com elements, and like I think I, I leaned into the premise of Quantum Leap. Like, he's jumping around time, jumping around places, and I really wanted to get that element of various different times and this woman who kind of disrupts his his routine, you know? And I think we've seen the, the Quantum Leap routine over and over again on the TV show, like episode to episode. So if we do it in a movie, you want it to be like something that breaks that routine, something that is big and something that is kind of different. And I went for that with mine. I went for something that it, Scott Bakula's on his quantum routine, but he's breaking it to be in this rom-com uh, movie here. And we have uh, that woman, Nina, who is the inspiration to kind of have him change his routine. And Wonder. you get an arc from both of those. Like Nina's traveling through time, not connecting with people, but she meets this one guy. You can also kind of travel through time and he has the same arc. So I think what makes a rom-com great is that both of the characters have arcs to change. And I think mine, you get both of those characters having some growth. And Nina's the time traveler who doesn't connect to other people, but then she has the Scott Bakula encounter <laughs> where, well, of course it's not Scott Bakula. It's Chris Hemsworth, who is, uh, I would think, Scott a bit Bakula. more attractive than Scott Bakula. But no. yeah, if I, across, if I saw Chris Hemsworth, I would definitely be in love with 30 him. 30 seconds. So yeah, Joe sucks. My movie is good. Mm, and uh, no. I think that mine leads into the premise of Quantum Leap and leans to the premise of a rom-com, and I think Max Barbica would be a great pick because he could balance sci-fi and romance. So that's my uh, attack on Joe's because he sucks, and I'm curious to see who won the episode. Joe, you so suck. So am I. Yeah, because um, Chris Hemsworth has been I, great at I mean, leading movie. I have thoughts um, if you can hear me. Chris Hemsworth Bobby, is a great comedic Bobby, actor. I need Bobby to talk, um, preferably about Scott Bakula. <laughs> so Scott Bakula is on NCIS Los Angeles or <laughs> whatever. New no, in New Orleans. New Orleans, that's the one. Um, and Whoa. so is uh, what's his name from uh, Tokyo <laughs> Tokyo Drift? Oh, not anymore. He, they killed him off. I think. Oh well, he was on there. Oh, so he's getting Fast killed off. Furious? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the lead in that. No, and the other the the white guy. Lucas <laughs> Black. Han. Lucas Black. Lucas Black was on there. But anyways, um, <laughs> before my internet cuts out, uh, I actually think Tristan brought up a point saying his leans into the premise of Quantum Leap, but I actually think that Joe's actually fit Quantum Leap better to me, the, the premise that he gave, the actual storyline he's telling instead of just going into a million different things in the same movie and trying to fall in love. Um, I prefer Joe's story where it's a little bit more um, like kind of concentrated on one kind of thing and Chris Rock being able to do that. I think that fits a little better to me. So I, I liked Joe's pitch a little better personally. Oh, yeah, um, but uh, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't like a, a runaway victory, but I, I think that Joe's pitch just sounded a little bit more in, interesting to me rather than Tristan's rom-com. It's tough because Tristan brought up Scott Bakula a lot more than Joe. Okay, fuck Scott Bakula as far yeah. as this. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh no. Joe talking yeah. Okay, but who knew who was listing out Scott Bakula facts? Like who was the one out here saying NCIS New Orleans? Joe actually brought up the uh the TV brought up shows. M- uh, necessary yeah, like, roughness, I don't NCIS. Care about that. I care that Tristan said Scott Bakula more. Okay, if Tristan also wins that... because this whole I'm He won't. If that's the only reason, then I will, then I will overrule it. If Johnny has other reasons, maybe I'll let him talk. I'll overrule. I mean, Tristan also said that Joe sucks <laughs> multiple times. Tristan sucks way worse. Which than is me. a fact. So I don't know. I'm compelled by Tristan's arguments. <laughs> um, because because Joe sucks, 
and Scott Bakula rules. I don't know. I'm I don't fucking know what to pick here. Um Bobby chose Joe, so I guess I choose Joe. Hell yeah. But I I'm not happy about it. I, I you like You don't Tristan's have to be. More. I don't care that you're happy about it. You like my uh, you know what? So fuck I, feel it. Like I, I, I choose Tristan, so fuck you, Bobby. What are we doing? <laughs> uh oh, well no. your reasoning is terrible, so <laughs> my uh, if, unless is, you have is, better Okay. Unless you have better all right, tell me an I listen, I listened to both pitches, and Tristan brought up the actual plot of Quantum Leap. I felt his character's actually Quantum Leaping, you know, Time uh, Warp or whatever the fuck I named that movie. Um, I named it Time Jump. I feel like Tristan's actually had that, and I listened to Joe's pitch. And maybe I just zoned out the whole time, but I didn't actually hear much did. actually quantum leaping. I, I heard oh, like one self. plot that was like fine, but I, I didn't hear much yeah. leaping. I, so I need I a got, lot of leaping and uh and Tristan leaped more. Yeah, I went for what I got leaps. from it. What I got more from it, leaps. Johnny, is that Tristan Trist, Tristan used more leaps, but I don't think it served his story. And Joe did one and it told a full story with that one quantum leap which is what they do in these series like it's like a single episode of the series and i also left mine open for like a sequel where you could have more leaps right but so i, I, I like joe telling a I full story do, rather than I, tristan's personally but i don't want a sequel i, I, I didn't say you need a sequel show. i mine you, he, he leaps at the end of his movie and he could be leaping back home he could leap into a different body you don't know but here's my argument for tristan Look at his glasses. Okay, look at my hat. Your hat's That hat shit. is nothing compared to these glasses. Tristan okay, if Tristan more... wins because of his glasses, I'm saying Bobby at least has more reasons for why I should. I, I do. Johnny's Johnny is jumping back and forth between reason and like whatever. Can I get like, 20, like, glasses, like ten seconds so... to, to, to give a point? Ten seconds. Go. Multiple quantum leaps in a quantum leap movie rather than just one. Joe's feels like an episode. Okay. Of mine feels like a movie sale. Movie scale right. version of quantum leap. I prefer. I prefer the simplicity of one. Yeah, you I have like a bunch more. of leaps that don't like matter. And this is where the... we're split. I like a lot of leaps. I like leaping. You know, I'm a big fan of Jumper. <laughs> I like all the jumps they <laughs> okay, do. That if that movie sucks. only had one jump, I'd be right. pissed. Johnny is not giving very solid arguments, so. If he's in love with the I time like traveler, to... he's gonna leap a lot. Like that's my game. Mind. Also, so if he's in love Johnny, with the time traveler, so I'm winning is... into the premise Hi! of having him leap a lot. I like the Can casting of Chris Rock in this role rather than Chris Hemsworth as a lead for a quantum leap. I would rather see Chris right, right, Rock right, right. playing the funny but different like, characters. Chris Rock is Joe's director who hasn't ever was really great, done guys. anything. And Tristan's director is Max Barbacow, who yeah, I think he's would done make it look like a good movie. Top yeah, but what is Chris Rock directed? Top five. Top five. Nothing yeah, but like that's movie. way different than anything Joe said. There's no leaping or yeah, but it's like in one top five. The story that's... he's telling is is more simple other than just you're you're basically bookending it with the leaps. Like, so I like, I the leap. like what he's telling. Okay, but his movie has so many leaps to the point it doesn't make sense that they keep running into each other all the goddamn time. She's a time traveler. They're running. But how does she know where he is? That you because he's you said he's the one that keeps finding her. You said because he he can see her because she's in the same body every time, but he's in different bodies. If she's the one time traveling to find him, how is he the one that's in different? Like how does she keep finding him if he's in different bodies every time? How does she know where to go? 
because she's okay, a time traveler. I'm giving you both. Okay, your reasons are bad. She met him. Ah! The meeting, the meeting of them is in not in order. So she meets him and and she knows where he's gone. She's met. She's had this whole romance right. with him. So she's able we to do need a tiebreaker here? argument because apparently we're split on judging. Here, here's the tiebreaker. Joe and Tristan, I'm giving you both ten seconds. Joe, I'm going to start with you. Give me the tagline to your movie. I'm picking whoever has the better okay. tagline. It's our decision, Joe, though, Johnny. Ten seconds. Bobby, shut it's your not... fucking mouth. Joe, you can win me over here. Give me a tagline. I'm starting now. Okay. Three, four, five, six, seven. You have three seconds. You Leap into the past something. to save your brother. Or save the future. <laughs> What was that? Say? Leap into the past to save your future. Okay. All right. I like, I like it. it. Tristan, you have 10 seconds now. Okay. The original is called Quantum Leap Time Jump. So I leaned into that and I, I'm going to make my tagline. Uh, uh, 10 seconds. <laughs> okay. All right, Joe wins. No, hold Thanks. on. Tristan didn't with... say anything. <laughs> Right. Yeah, because he had I, all I, of I, the time I, that I had Joe, to think of to think of something too. It should have been you both say right. something right now. It shouldn't be Joe. You get ten seconds, oh, Tristan. You yeah, also get ten seconds. seconds in him, and he had more time than yeah. you. And Joe time said something like, hey, "I'm going to rule as as Joe the co-judge <laughs> and being more sober than Johnny." Joe wins Alpha, due to better Alpha arguments right. and better reasoning rather There's, than right. uh, whatever Johnny said. Joe had an actual tagline. Tristan did not give me a tagline. Joe, there's always time for love. Is a tagline. That's yeah. not a good tagline. tagline. Well, I already, yeah. I already declared on one. I already have four points right. on the board. I win. Uh, yeah. Does anyone have anything Go else wins. to say? This is our longest, ep- one of our longest episodes. So, yeah, we started this as a way we were like, yeah, we got this good way to shorten our episodes, <laughs> and now we're at and almost then three hours. fifteen minutes to the end of the our episode. Longest but... episode. No, I added a minute <laughs> All right. each to, to make a tagline. Yeah. You could have just gave it to me, and it would have been easy, you know? Yeah, but Bobby wouldn't let me do that. An actual creative use of the quantum leap premise. I'm going to be honest. I don't remember either pitch. Um, I just (laughs) wanted to not agree with Bobby and have an argument. (laughs) So, uh, to that extent, while neither of you had enough Scott Bakula, I do like Joe's premise um of the singular quantum leap makes sense to me because that's how the episodes were it's a but movie i do not think for a movie i do think it should have more um yeah i i at the end of the day i concede to bobby and he chose joe but you know the host you should make do? the final call oh yeah because that's not a thing anymore yeah but neither of you did scott bacula so right. i can't i'm just ending the episode 10 <laughs> 9 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 8,